G'day, Dark Walkers. AOS Coach here, and we are talking all things Beast of Chaos. I have the Dab Man himself, <laughs> uh, the Nuge SoCal's finest, uh, Matt Nguyen, who you probably already know from this channel. He's been on here at least once, probably if not more. You've, got, you've been on here a few times now. Thank you. I've been on here twice. Thank you. The first BFC video and then the LVO recap, which was like yes. really fun to do. Yeah, we're, we're, we're singlet brothers here. So, uh, But for anyone who doesn't know who Matt is, he is a top Beast of Chaos player. You are currently ranked number one on the ITC when it comes to things uh, Beast of Chaos. You've done incredibly well at the Nova Open, uh, as well as Old Town Throwdown, just to name a few tournaments in the current season. But we're going to revisit the faction. We are going to talk about where Beast of Chaos stand in the current meta. You obviously came out hot at the start of the new battle tome, which was what January this year, January, yeah, yeah, it came out with gifts, so about the, right after LVO. Yeah, I remember, I remember recording things just before getting onto a flight to to LVO, and um, obviously we got to talk about Beast of Chaos. You took the meta by storm for a little bit, and you know, not that you trailed off, but there hasn't been really any heavy nerfs. There has obviously been a bunch of stuff with the current season around and Torian Locuses. So I thought it was a really good time to revisit Beast of Chaos to understand where do we currently stand in the meta? What are our top picks? Uh, if I was going to go to a tournament, what are some of the things that I'd be thinking about? And even how do I start kind of handling the meta, whether it's Seraphons, uh, Sawblade Gravelords, Ostiarch Bone Reapers, Slanesh, like how do I handle it as a Beast of Chaos player? But that's what today's video is going to be about. Matt, introduce yourself for the folks who don't know you. Hey, um, my name's, uh, am I looking at the camera? Yeah, <laughs> name's Matt Wynn. Um, I started Warhammer Age of Sigmar and tabletop games in general in 2019 after living abroad for a long time. And, um, you know, started competing in like RTTs and GTs in 2020 when Gareth Thomas was hosting around and then um, stuck with Beast of Chaos in the old book for a long time. Then they got their uh, big buff and now... Um, I've been to many tournaments at this point, and I'm also currently the captain of uh, SoCal United. So, yeah, it's been a fun time. Love going to GTs, love going to events, seeing people. And I also host RTTs, and I'm planning to host another GT myself because I enjoyed it last year, uh, this coming January. So, yeah. Mr. Nice Utility himself does everything for everyone. Um, that's really cool. That's really cool. <laughs> Well, they call me the uh, they call me the team soccer mom for a reason because uh, <laughs> when we travel out of state, sometimes when we drive, and I take the family van, so it's like, yeah, I, I also like micromanaging things sometimes. So yeah, that's how I, I earn title. I can confirm that you did drive people to LVO, uh, and I stayed at your house, although I didn't actually drive with you. Uh, a bit of a shame, but. Beasts of Chaos, let's talk about yeah. this army. So for anyone, you know, obviously nine months ago, we caught up uh, not long after the Battle Tome dropped and we kind of talked about it in the context of the current season, which was Galatian champions, a lot of small heroes. They were doing a bunch of things. They were tunnel mastering. They were being generally annoying. But we've had obviously a new change. We've had wizards with the wizard finds of antor we've had Horfrost, we have merciless blizzard we've got uh the the wizard meta which could be good for cycle there's like so much going on right now maybe let's start at the top how are you finding beasts of chaos in this current season of wizard primal dice goodness 
So compared to the last season, I actually think Beasts of Chaos is in a better place, even though we weren't bad last season. But I think because a lot of the missions were um, just scrum in the middle, which Beasts of Chaos, even though we are a combat army, we don't actually like um, just grinding in the middle. We're not a grind army. We like to ambush. We like to cause as much chaos as possible while we score. But like, that's just the nature of the army. And then, especially in this GHB, not only are like the objectives more spread out, all the battle tactics are really different in that like you don't have to kill to win the game. And combined with Beast of Chaos tactics, which we'll look at later, you could actually like just play the Beast of Chaos could actually play the game without like killing much and just they just can win by off of scoring. So that so even though right now when weight rise, I think we're at like a 48 last time I looked at it, we're at a really like, you know, I think right now Beast of Chaos can generally take lists that we want to, as long as we like try to tailor around playing around the battle tactics and everything. And because we don't have to like be over committal, that means we don't have to risk much to um, score victory. So yeah, I think we're actually in a really nice place and I can't wait to review the rest of how Beast of Chaos interacts with GHV. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because unlike Gits, which is, you know, the, the direct competitor who came out the exact same time, there were so many things that happened in Gits. Gits probably came out with a stronger win percentage, often off the back of the squigs. You then saw a bunch of points increases like Scragrod, and uh, there's a whole bunch of things that got changed, right? Um, yeah. Rules got changed. The squigs can't do. Anyway, this is not the squig show. But Beast of Chaos didn't seem to get that type of thing. You so guys we did get relatively, un relatively unchanged, relatively. Yeah, so I, I, we did get some notable point changes that did mess with lists from the last JHP to this JHP. For example, Doom Bull was 160, now he's 180. Bulgors were, um, I think they were one, yeah, they were 180 or something like that. Now they're 210. And then Raiders, which were at 110, now went up to 130. So that definitely changes, that changed our list a lot because um, I guess they the points went up because of how beasts were performing at Worlds with Bulgors and Ungor Raiders just being really effective, especially in a team's environment where you can just put them in the best matchups and they can generally like do very well. So other than that though, um, Beast Chaos players like myself have like adapted to these changes. They weren't as drastic as like, let's say Gitz was, even though Beast of Chaos is like, when they came, when the win rate came out, I think Beast of Chaos is an army where if you go against them the first time because of all the mechanics that we have, um, it's really like, wow, it's like in your face, you don't know how to respond. But if you play against it enough, you understand like how to be able to play against Beast of Chaos, which is why the win rate has, you know, leveled out to be like in a balanced like medium. Because Beast of Chaos is an army where it's very much the general's army. If you're able to pilot it really well, you can do really well with it. So yeah, that's kind of like the beauty of it. So how would you explain it? Like if I was at the game store and I'm like, okay, I'm going to pick up Beast of Chaos. I love this monstral kind of corrupted army. Uh, I've seen some people playing it and it looks really cool. Uh, and I haven't really dabbed into it just yet. How would you describe their play style and potentially their strengths and weaknesses? So, so they're definitely their strengths. So if I had to like really think really like, um, Try to nail it down to a few. So one of the strengths of our army is null deployment. BOC is the only army in the game with the ability to null deploy our entire army. What null deployment is, is that during the deployment phase, instead of deploying a unit on board, we can deploy it off board. Because we're able to deploy um, a good part of our army or what we want to 
do off board. Um, it gives the, the Beast Chaos player a lot of technical flex, tactical flexibility, and then it makes it difficult for your opponent to read you. So I guess if you really enjoy that kind of thing, um, then you know that then you know try Beast of Chaos, and then also we have a lot of utility and mechanics where like we're just able to interact with the flow of battle outside of killing opponents. We have a large model range because BOC is from Warhammer Fantasy. So there's a lot of like, you can make any kind of Beast of Chaos army you want. And then uh, we have four diverse sub-factions, which changes the way how you play the army. So that's what is also incentivizes, you know, maybe another incentive for people. And also we're a glass cannon army, which means big damage and people like seeing damage. So that was that is the strength of our army. If I have to describe the weaknesses, we have low armor saves. The best armor save in Beast of Chaos is a four-up armor save. Generally, everything else is a five or six-up save. And because we're a low armor save, we're very fragile. And if you don't, because you have to play like carefully, and since we have zero recursion tools because we don't have the four-up rally anymore, uh, Beast of Chaos are very susceptible to being doubled. And then we don't have huge spell casting bonuses. We only have one cast. And then we have low bravery, so five to six bravery. So if we go in against anything that can mess with bravery, we don't like that, and we're not an army that actually likes to trade. We just like to. Um, I think we're we're almost like I think we're like silver up in that guard where we just like we just like to punch, and then not like to get punched back. So yeah, that is the strength of weaknesses of Beast of Chaos. I too like to punch and not get punched back. I think we all can at least feel yeah. that, right? <laughs> but, you, but you're right. Like when you think about Beast of Chaos and the first archetype that comes to mind if you are someone who's played them before is the ability to come in from the side of the board. So if anyone doesn't know the, the term null deploy, we're talking about in the deployment phase, you don't have to traditionally put all of your toys in your deployment zone. You could put your Ungor Raiders, you could put a bunch of things on the side and they can come in on different points of the board. And maybe you can explain a bit more about how that's actually a benefit because as a Stormcast player, being able to drop things on the board is really helpful, right? It means that, uh, actually, no, I'll pass it to you. What, why is the null deployment or being able to deploy a bunch of troops uh, outside of traditional deployment areas helpful at, in, a, in a tournament or even to help you win games? So it's helpful in just tournament or not tournament game. Like it's helpful in general because, like I said earlier, Beast of Chaos uh, units generally have low saves. And um, because we are susceptible to also low bravery, we don't. We want to always engage the opponent on our own terms. So what that means is that no matter how the opponent deploys, they always have to be very mindful that we can disappear anywhere on the battlefield when we come out, and we're able to hit them really hard. Like they can't actually. It, they could try to screen out a beast of chaos player, but we have some tools in our army that lets us deal with screens or any attempts at trying to zone us out. And then we also for example, can charge in the in the combat phase with a command with special command ability that we'll go through later, through Bulgors and the Bull and the Doom Bull itself, and um, yeah, and because we can also uh, because we also null deploy, we can also deploy anywhere on the board. So it lets us play for you know tactics like surround and destroy, intimidate the invaders, and then other pieces of chaos tactics where it's just oh take an objective with a unit of ten or more. So yeah, I think that's why piece of chaos player. Beast of Chaos, um, while they're not like dom, they're, I wouldn't say that they're dominant, but they do show up enough at 4 1 and occasional 5 0s from players like Owen Jackson, Noah Singh, you know, 
yourself. They're, they're, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I wasn't gonna say anything. Yourself, <laughs> like I'll, I'll call it out. And like one of the things that I think you know there is a steep learning curve for this army. Like I feel like it is. It's got a similarity to Lumineth, where when you start off as a Lumineth player or you start off as a Beast of Chaos player. There's a lot of tricks and shenanigans that you learn over time and you often will get it wrong the first time, but then through refined practice and, and when to pull the trigger and like how much do I put into, into reserve, when do I pull them out, like they're all things that you kind of learn along the way. So there's a steep learning curve with Beast of Chaos. Unless you just put everything on the table, you run forward and, and, and hope to smash, which might not be necessarily the best uh, plan. It's definitely fun though but yeah i agree with uh i agree with everything that you said there you know i play gits i love to run forward and smash but because you don't have as you mentioned the recursion being able to bring back bodies you know very easily you don't have a lot of other shenanigans like you and you don't want to get hit uh you might find that you and you know you don't want to do a lot of bra a, a bravery tests as well again like my kids so like i do not want to take multiple bravery checks keep those geminids away from me keep that bloody um grave tide away from me like i need to win the triumph because otherwise like a double battle shot can be brutal against me uh if i lose a bunch of of, of my low bravery idiots yeah, of course. And also, I do want to emphasize a point where it, this is an army that you need constant repetitions in. You can't just pick up the army and do well with it once because of how um, squishy the army is in terms of just saves and bravery. And then um, sometimes, because the army, I would say, is a Johnny kind of army, uh, which what Johnny is essentially is a term for magic where it's like it relies on a lot of like tricks and maneuvers to like pilot towards victory. So a lot of the synergies in the army are not obvious when you first read it. It's, it only becomes obvious when you start talking to other Beast of Chaos players or playing it yourself, and then you develop your own style. And I'll plug my own Discord at this point. If you are a Beast of Chaos player, we have an incredible uh, channel for, for, uh, for Beast of Chaos. So come check it out. And you're right, because... And it also works in your favor that, like, if I haven't played Beast of Chaos before or I'm not well practiced because i don't have a beast of chaos person in my region it's hard to look at a beast of chaos army and go what do i kill what what am, what, what are my target priorities and how do i as you said um score by battle tactics screen out and zone off the board to stop ambushes how do i uh take out particular pieces and which pieces do i pull out not that it's a gotcha moment but it's 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 not as obvious on what the linchpins are to the army yeah, I think for opponents, it requires a couple of games against Beast of Chaos to actually understand what it does. And then they're also better able to assess the weaknesses and then they can play around it. And I will say the mechanics of Beast of Chaos are, can be gotcha-ish. So I always encourage you know, Beast of Chaos players to thoroughly explain our mechanics because if someone doesn't know what it does, um, they could be in for a hard time. And, you know, no one likes to play Gotcha Hammer. We always like to play you know, for a good time. So, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 look, I've never had a bad game against Beast of Cows. I've never felt bad that someone has pulled the wool over my eyes. But there are a lot of tricks. And uh, again, coming from armies that have plenty of tricks, it's just being able to pull the trick off at the right time. And yeah, like it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, a lot of it is timing. So that, that's the important thing. 
Have you got any favorite units in the current season? Maybe something that wasn't so good in the last season that's had a glow up. Maybe something that has had a points adjustment that is now in your favor. Obviously, we've had lookout serve rules change as well. So it means, you know, uh, protecting our small heroes is a lot easier. Anything that's kind of really stood out to you between seasons or just something that's really working right now in the current General's Handbook? So there's two units that actually really stand out to me right now that I didn't really look at last season, but when I looked at now, they're really impactful. The Zangor Shaman and Slongors. So for the Zangor Shaman, um, I think because we didn't really have any bonuses to cast, and his bonus, to, but his he can get plus three to cast, and he can cast a second spell once per game. But because we didn't really have any spells from last season that were really impactful, we didn't really look at it too much. But now because of spells like Horror Frost, Blizzard, and other you know things that are out there, we actually now I really like the Zangor Shaman because even though he doesn't have the eighteen inch range of the Rituals of Rune, his is only twelve inches. He can still really he can still be like a counter punch piece where he could just blast someone with Blizzard just in case anyone gets into like our lines. So that's why I really like him now. And when we go into my list later, I'll also explain the more intricacies of why I think the Zangor Shaman is really good. And then the other unit is Slongors. Slongors actually became. Um, considerably cheaper, and I like taking MSU units of them to just clear screens, because sometimes, um, so we have a unit called Ungor Raiders or Archers, where they have 21 shots, 4s and 4s, so sometimes they can spike, sometimes they don't, but some, if Raiders can't finish the job, then I like to have the Slongors go in and just clear screens, and they can double fight once per game, so I think therefore, even though Beast of Chaos doesn't like to trade, it lets, Slongors are cheap enough to let me trade and force the opponent to like come out of their like deployment or castle yeah it's funny i remember doing the the beast of chaos review and i'm pretty sure i said like this is the season it's not the season this is the time if slango are ever going to be good like this is the time at 130 they've got some interesting attacks msu by the way if you don't know is minimum size unit so don't reinforce the unit, just keep them as units of three. Being able to du fight once, uh, double fight once per game, which is really neat. Um, there's, uh, yeah, there's a couple of interesting rules on there. Although they hit on fours, wound on threes, the, the damage is decent enough that uh, they're, they're, they're worth the 130. And most yeah. people are just going to ignore them. Like, they've, they haven't seen Slunger on the table. They're like, uh, I just ignore them. Yeah, so I guess the nice thing about them is that even though they're like five up saves, three wounds each, which is like, you know, not crazy, because they can double fight and because they can have up to like, I think if, um, let me, if they, so they have 13 attacks by a unit of three of them, two damage each. And then with Beast of Chaos Ren, it, they can get to easily Ren two or Ren three if they survive long enough. So that's what makes them really punchy. And if they're able to double fight into something that's like higher than their points cost, then like, to me, it's worth it. Like, it's just... And also, because of spells like Horror Frost, you can actually get... If you want to build around it, you can get them to hit on threes or twos, and that significantly ups their output. So, yeah. They, they're, they've they definitely surprised me um, with how effective they've been, and I think they're the sole reasons why I've... Um, done, I did well at uh, Nova with the 6-2 record, and then Old Town Throwdown, I played in the final against Gavin. Definitely credit Slong Wars towards my path to victory. Slug goals are OP. Go buy buy them by the bucket load. No, like they, they're a cool model, and I'm glad to finally see them. And it just shows you, like, you know, models uh, aren't always good, but there is always a time where they will get, they will shine in, they will shine under the sun. It might just take a couple of years.
Yeah, and I'm an, I'm an avid Beast of Chaos collector, so I bought Slongers when they first came out two years ago, and I painted them, and now, like, I can bust them out, so it makes me really happy. And, like you're saying, Warhammer models, like, I guess if I have to think of a comparison, they're like stocks, you know? Sometimes the stock goes up, stock goes down, and it always comes back around again. So, you know, don't sell your stuff. Keep it, you know, it'll pay off. Your loyalty will pay off one day. What about the cycle? And I call that specifically the cycle because uh, I remember when the Battle Tome first came out, we loved the anti-magic properties of whether it's the Quake Fray or even just um, the cycle independently. And people were talking about it as a, a, a potential great unit just to have in your collection, to bring it in even as an ally. Like I've, I, you know, I was talking to, to Blake the other day around uh, Blades of Corn, and we talked about it potentially as an ally to double down on the anti-magic side. Is, is this a good season for the cycle given there's primal magic and we're trying to stop more magic and there's critical spells that... Um, having extra boost would, would give us a leg up. Yes. I, so that's the unit I actually did forget to like highlight, but thank you for highlighting it. Cygors were, when I look at their worst scroll when the bird first came out in January, I really liked it. And now I like them even more, especially in a sub faction called Quake Frey because Quake Frey um, makes Cygors battle line and they make them priests and they give a prayer to a Cygor where you can just have models on objectives and then because they come with two unbinds, and every time you cast, you take a mortal wound. And combined with Primal, they're just a solid anti-magic piece. And it actually hits hard for, like, what its war scroll is. Like, it's very, it's very well-rounded. It's effective. And um, I wish I could fit the Saigor more in my lists. But because I build mine differently, sadly I can't. But they, they're definitely a, um, a prime pick, especially in... Quake Frey, where I feel like they're fully maximize their potential. So yeah, um, I haven't I haven't seen Quake Frey really hit the table yet. I'm super curious, especially with some of the the mortal wounds on an objective. I think there's some interesting rules in there, but I'm yet to see it, which is kind of disappointing. But also, I kind of realize that maybe you're doubling down a little bit too much uh, in Quake Frey. So one of the lists we will look at later is the Quake Frey list that I um. So if you remember the last piece of chaos, chaos player interviewed Brian uh, Cox, he's a good friend of mine. We talk a lot. And um, that list is something that we worked on like together and he's piloted it and take it to like a good amount of like four ones. So I can't wait to look at that later for someone that like, let's say if they are, if you are a piece of chaos player watching the stream and you don't want to look, you know, look at dark walkers all the time and look at other options, there will be other like options we will be looking at later. So I can't wait to explore that as well as the Michigan GT list that um, did incredibly well over the weekend too. So we'll have a, a diverse set of uh, lists to kind of look over and give you a bit of thought around how you might build your current Beast of Chaos list in 2023, GBH, Antorian, Acolyte, Wizard stuff. Yeah. Speaking of wizardies, uh, we have the rules. And uh, I, I guess we'll kind of mix it up here between General's Handbook 2023 and Beast of Chaos and kind of merge and get some of your thinking around the current season. But let's start off with the Antor rules. And uh, first off, you've got one with the land. So basically, we know that a wizard with nine wounds or less that's not unique is an Antorian locus. Is our only selection the uh, the Great Bray Shaman because obviously Grashrak is a he, uh, is a, a character. Uh, is does a shaman is a shaman? 
So oh, right now, yes, it's only the from. Let me look really quick because I know it's not the Zangor Shaman because he's on a mount, so he would not get it. But I'm pretty sure it is just the Brave Shaman, like you said. Yeah, it's uh, just the Brave Shaman. But if you give like a Doom Bull or a Beast Lord a Arcane Tome, then you'll also get the Locust keyword. The, the the wizard hero with nine wounds or less that is uh, not unique. So there's nothing about mounts. Or am I am I losing the plot here? Oh, oh. I thought there I thought there was something with mounts. Oh wait, let, let me let me have a look. Yeah, because I sometimes I I heard that yes they don't need a yes the mount is required or no it's not because yeah, I've heard it like bounced around so. Anyway, like all right, I'll I'll look yeah. this up while we while we're chatting because I always like oh is the beast of chaos Zangor shaman a Antorian acolytes a Antorian locus but with you you have obviously the ability to choose either an extra spell cast and spell attempt or do you get yourself in what do you find if you're given second in the, the battle round do you often go for the extra CP or are you going for the extra cast and the unbind. So sometimes because I have a Warlord Battalion, if I'm going second, so it allows me to have some CP. And if I'm going second, I have a good amount of CP anyway. Um, I think because it's all done start of hero phase, I see if I can get a hero, if I do the heroic action for CP, and that kind of lets me determine, okay, do I want the extra cast? Do I want the extra unbind? Or or another command point? I often go for the extra cast because Beasts of Chaos do generally have like good War Scrolls on their thing. Or maybe I want to cast Mystic Shield, Arcane Bolt, and then, let's say, some other spell, like Blizzard or whatever. So I actually do like the extra cast because it also gives you an extra unbind. And when you're going against some armies that really want to get their key spells off, and with how primal dice are, you can actually unbind their key spells if you give yourself an extra unbind, which is critical. Uh, by the way, I know where the confusion has lied on the Entorian Locus. So when you look at the Entorian Acolytes Battalion... It specifically says that the battalion wizard can't have a mount, but the realm rules says that Antorian locusts don't. You don't need a mount. You can have a mount. So you, uh, unless I'm, I'm completely missing an FAQ or an errata, uh, it should allow you to. No, have no, no. A... You, you are right. Yeah. So you, so the mounted wizard can't be in the battalion, but they do get the locust keyword. Okay. So, well, yeah. I wish I knew that because I, I just played it off as they. I can't be one because I'm not on the mount. But okay, well. Maybe rule. Maybe rules could have been clearer, and potentially we would have had uh, like just keep the same thing between the battalion and the rules. But anyway, let's talk wizard primal magic dice. We generate them. We hopefully know how this all works. Mm -hmm. When you think of primal magic dice, when you are playing with your list, are you building into your list? Are you building into that battalion? Are you playing into generating as much dice? Do you need the critical spells? What, what comes to mind when it comes to the, the Primal Magic dice? So, because of the way I build my Beast of Chaos list, I don't start most of my heroes on the board, because the way how Beast of Chaos work is, we're able to do our Rituals of Ruin, like such as making a unit come closer to a board edge 2d6, or taking Mortal Wounds d6 from the board edge. So, because we're off the board edge doing that, uh, the Battalion specifically requires you to be on board to get the extra Primal dice. So, for me, even though I sometimes would have loved to have that battalion in some of my lists it's better to just play around the fact that i can just play off board and um where they can't touch my heroes i can and then i can interact with the opponent in a way that like i can mess with their plans and then you know cause general chaos because that's the theme of the army so it is a good battalion you... but i 
I don't think Beasts of Chaos need to rely on it as much as other armies do. Are you keeping wizards on the table to stop, you know, um, magical dominance, battalion, uh, battalion, battle tactic? Are you, uh, are you just keep keeping all of your wizards off the board? So, um, it's matchup dependent. Like, let's say if it's an army that can get to that wizard easily, then I then I have it off board. But if I know that they can't, then I have at least one wizard on board because I tend to find players give Beast of Chaos players first. So I, you know, for example, do Magical Dominance, and then that's generally a guaranteed tactic unless I miscast or Primal Miscast. But yeah, it just, I mean, having at least one wizard on the board, which I, which in my list are Zangor Shamans, they just cast their spell and then they move 16 away and just wait to see how the rest of the game goes. And are you using your primal magic dice to boost the spell cast? Are you finding it is better to save them for unbinding uh, opponent's spells? Like, where are you spending your resources? Obviously, uh, matchup dependent, situation yeah. dependent. Yeah, I like you said. It's not there's not really a straightforward answer. I think it was really dependent on like the matchup if they have the battalion or not. I also have to like look at the spells that they have, the opponent has to like see, okay, do they need a, this critical spell to go off? Yes, then I save the dice to try to unbind. If their spell isn't as critical, then no. I try to save it for um, Blizzard or like some other spell or something that I like to have in the list. So, yeah. Yeah, I probably find keeping my primal dice for unbinding more often than trying to get a spell off because... It, look, spells are nice, don't get me wrong, but I always want to unbind the critical spells because I know from my armies, and I imagine you're the same, because you don't have a lot of magical dominance in your army, you don't need all the spells to go off to make your army successful, but certainly yeah. other people's do. Certainly people do, like whether it's protection of Hish, whether it's like obviously you can pull out any particular army, and there's always like that one or two critical spells. Yeah, so... The way I think of magic in a, in a Beast of Chaos army, because it's not the strength of the army, if I'm able to get a spell off with my wizard, to me it's more of a bonus of anything. It's kind of like a backup plan. It's like, okay, um, hmm, maybe I need this to happen, but if this doesn't happen, I'm fine. Like, I have other... The, the army itself has so many other, like, ways to play around the game where, like, we don't play... If, if these spells or unbinds don't happen the way they do or cast, then I'm like, okay, I just shrug my shoulders and just move on. And that's literally my point is that, you know, for, probably for a Beast of Chaos player, I imagine keeping those dice for unbinds will probably generate you more benefit than trying to boost off a particular spell, unless it's a critical spell you need at this particular time. Yeah, that's that, that's honestly what it comes down to. You Generally, I save it for unbinds, but if I want to get Blizzard off or, like, Magical Dominance, then, like, I use it for that. So it's, sure. it's situational. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no silver bullet to this. It's either you know, like it's obviously pick up, pick, pick you. You know, <laughs> don't use a problem magic dice if you roll a one in your original spell cast. At least that's my advice. Yeah, no, I've learned that lesson too many times in my practice games, where it's like, mm, I, I sometimes I think with the mindset of, uh, oh, ninety five percent of gamblers quit before they win, but that's just my Vegas mentality speaking to me, and then I get punished because I roll another one. So yeah, if you see a one, just don't even bother. Yeah, yeah, my play, my opponents always try to goat me, and I'm like, damn it, stop it! Like, like I will, I will take your bait. I'm like, nah, nah, like you chicken. I'm like, yeah, I am. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing it because the mass effects of bunch of mortal wounds happening from the little explosions. I can't afford with my bravery five, four, six idiots. Yeah, 
And I feel like because it is a mechanic in the game, I always feel like if there's a ch- if there's a chance that you could probably miscast, it almost feels like 50% of the time it will happen, even though it's technically a one in six chance. Yeah, yeah, it happens. Uh, I was about to use a, a, an end command. Was it 70% of the time it happens every time? Yeah, it happens yeah. more than more than you realize. But with your allegiance abilities, like you've, you've referred to Rituals of Ruin uh, a fair few times already. Um, before we get into that particular part, you know, when you look at, let's say, the, the Beast Herd ambush or even the Master of the Wilderness, is there things at list building that you consider, right? Because during deployment, instead of setting up Beasts of Chaos units, you can put them into reserve, which is a great uh, change from the last book. If you are just picking this book up for the first time and you haven't looked at it since the old book, it was restricted to only... Holy within, within six. Yeah, and then... Um... You could only put as many units off board as you did on board, like Stormcast. That was the old restriction. But now new restriction is much more flexible. And now it's holy within nine rather than holy within six, which is like extremely like, you know, it helps with a lot of plays. So, you know, to revisit the rules so I can put um, I can put units into reserve. I can put as many units in reserve as possible. Uh, they must come out either in my first or mo- second movement phase. So uh, I can't hold them back till turn three. They've got to be down or they're going to die. And they come on the side of the board uh, outside of nine inches from enemies, but within nine inches of the battle board. So if you think of the battlefield, that's a lot of space. Whether I deploy it still in my territory, I put it on the flanks, I put it in the, the backfield in my opponent's territory. How do you think about it? Do you put certain units in there? Do you, uh, will, will you put 50% of your army in, in reserve? Uh, will you pull it out turn one, turn two? Situation aside, give me some starting points as a Beast of Chaos player on how to make the most of this particular rule. To make the most of this particular rule, you want to assess how the opponent deploys. And this is why I always advocate for Beast of Chaos players to go high drop, because if they go high drop, they can always wait to see how the opponent deploys before you can decide what to put in ambush, because it's. Every game is different because maybe sometimes I want one unit on the board. Sometimes maybe I don't. It's kind of like, I guess the whole theme of this video is that like, whatever you do with this art, every decision you make is very situational. There's not like a one game plan plan where it's like, okay, if I'm playing Lumina, I really want um, the extra CP spell to go off to mess with the opponent. Where this is like, you want to wait to see how they deploy. And then, but generally my game plan is I put hammer, I put hammer units like Bulgors because they hit really hard off board. I have my Ungor Raiders also off board because they get shoot off board once per game. But then maybe, and then I have most of my heroes off board except one wizard on the table and then maybe like a chaff unit to hold something. Or maybe I have a unit like Slongors or Zangor and Lightning on the board behind the chaff to like hit back if anything charges my chaff. So that's kind of like how I approach deployment with this army. You want to put most of your army off board, but then you want to have some pieces on the board so you can do tactics like surround and destroy or magical dominance turn one where you don't have to interact with the opponent as much until at least until turn two or turn three all right i'm going to give you some situations in a second but i want to call out um probably two units that are probably really popular for the the ambushing one is your ungore raiders who can shoot off the the um the board 
So when they're normally when you're in reserve, you can't do shooting. So I can't deep strike my long strikes in Stormcast and then shoot you off the board. Ungore Raiders do. You pick a point on the battlefield and you can shoot, right? Yeah. So when they pick a point on any battlefield edge, they have to pick the they have to pick um whatever. So they pick a point and then whatever is the closest enemy unit within twelve, they can shoot that unit. But then what you can hmm? Thank you, going. Oh. Then um, you can ask, oh, so what if the opponent just puts like a a unit that you don't want to shoot at in front of that unit? I'm like, yeah, they could do that to prevent the Ungor Raider from shooting. But that's why, you know, which we'll go over the Rituals of Ruin, you're able to use um, mechanics where you're able to. So this is one of the synergies of the army where you're able to pull a unit um, 2d6 closer to the board edge. That's like that wasn't within like, let's say, um, range of the Ungor Raiders, and then they'll be shot at at the start of the moon phase, and because it's at the start of the moon phase, your opponent cannot all-out defense. So it's just a bunch of fours and fours, random shots, and then it's just trying to, like, and usually the combo with that is that you're just trying to kill screens to open up your hammers to be able to charge in later. Or it forces your opponents not to have screens, and then they have to put something valuable that they don't want on an objective, which lets you charge them. The other unit that I wanted to call out from an ambush before we get to the Rituals of Ruin is the the Doom Bulls. And, you know, specifically what makes them – sorry, not the Doom Bull. The Doom Bull as a hero really enables the Bull Gores to make the most of coming from Deep Strike because you can do the hero phase charge. So it allows you – It's the, the, most... the combat phase charge. Sorry, that's what I that's what I meant. Sorry, yeah, no, what I was what I was trying to good. say was what I was going to say was what it allows you to do is charge in the charge phase. You do get your plus one to the charge from the beast herd ambush. If you fail this, and let's say you roll the CP and you still re-roll and fail it, and you know hitting an eight eight inch charge is not easy, but you then have a second bite at the apple through the slaughterer's call via the doom bull to then go for another charge. So all of a sudden, you, you think that after three dice rolls, you would have a much better chance of hitting the charge than not. Yeah, you can't all that attack them because you've received a command to charge in the combat phase, but it does mean that they're not just sitting out there doing nothing. Yeah, and Bulgors are also able to essentially double charge if the situation is right because they do mortal wound impact hits when they charge. So let's say... They come out of ambush, Bulgors charge like a screen unit that has like three units left. They kill the screen unit with impact hits, and then the Doom Bull issues the start of combat phase charge. And the nice thing about the start of combat phase charges is during both combat phases. So you could also do this during your opponent's uh, turn. So you can like maybe do mind games of, oh, hey, if you charge me, I'm going to charge you back and do a good amount of mortals. So yeah, I think that's another strength of the army to be able to essentially... Um, pile through a layer of screen to get into the juice. Yeah, and it does say the combat phase, not your combat phase, which is a huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference. So we've alluded and referred to Rituals of Ruin many times. You just talked about the blood blood taunt. So there's a couple little things. Like, give me the overview of, like, how you look at Rituals of Ruin because I know there is a command trait that allows you to do, is it two of them? Or there's some there's some, some shenanigans you can do for multiple yeah, Rituals so of it's, Ruin. So there is a command trait that lets you do two Rituals of Ruin on a hero. However, if you do the second Ritual of Ruin on that same hero, you don't have to take the Mortal Wounds. So to be able to do these Rituals of Ruins, like it shows in the, in the video slide, you have to either 
take the hero either has to take d3 mortal wounds or make another beast of chaos unit within three inches of that hero take d3 mortal wounds if you're off board then you're not able to um pass it off onto another unit the hero has to get d3 mortal wounds however this this mechanic also has a risk because if you if the hero takes d3 mortal wounds and it kills the hero which has happened to me before then the heroic action doesn't trigger so it's always kind of like a gamble it's like okay first turn i cut i cut myself for d3 i take three mortal wounds so now it's like hmm if i roll a two my hero is just dead or out of d3 so it's just kind of like you want to be very mindful of how many mortals you decide to take from these rituals of ruin so then you don't kill yourself but the trade-off is is that if you don't kill yourself from these then the effects that are listed on the table are very powerful and they help make it they help make the army work like rituals of ruin are a core part of the beast of chaos allegiance abilities and they should always be taken advantage of and the nice thing too is, is that like um so while you can only do one ritual of ruin off board if all your heroes are on board you can do multiple rituals of ruin you just can't do the same ritual of ruin and it's worth pulling out that it's also going to directly compete with your heroic willpower heroic recovery you know some of the other heroic um, abilities so you will be choosing if you want to get the extra unbind the extra art of uh, extra so command. do you um so oh, there's an there FAQ. An... Yeah, there's an FAQ, and they finally clarified this when I talked to Gareth Thomas and other like um, GW employees and TOs. So when they call it a, a heroic action, it's actually not a heroic action. Oh. You can do this in addition to heroic action. So it says it in it says it in the battle tome, and then they have to FAQ it because the wording wasn't clear. So it's even stronger where you're able to do both, and also because rituals of ruin are now. Um, FAQ to be start of the hero phase. So, for example, you could cut yourself for D3 mortal wounds, and then you could do the heroic action heal. That makes a lot of sense, because I hated the trade-off. I hated the trade-off. I'm just having a quick look to see if that is actually in an FAQ. I don't recall seeing it, but uh, the ritual... Uh... Yeah, and also in the battle tome, like, it, it says like, even though they call it a heroic action, it says you could do it in addition to any of the normal uh, heroic actions. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. I'll take your word for that one. I trust you as a glorified, glorified, amazing Visa Cast player. Uh, you'll, know, <laughs> you'll know your rules better than I do. When I, when I see it says heroic actions, I think of heroic action. Yeah. Um, I, again, the wording of it is like, in my opinion, not great. And it's really confusing because when I first looked at the book, I was really confused and I got multiple clarifications from TOs and then um other people that like talk the rules team and that's like okay this was their intention and it also says in the book you could do this in addition to um heroic actions but yeah yeah cool cool i don't want to hop on it like it cool all right yeah no i just want to i think it's good that we talk about this so we can make it clear to people who are getting into the army so they're not like confused so it's good that we're having this discussion great yeah what are your favorite heroic actions so you've already talked about blood taunt and I, re I realized I didn't actually ask you the question about the Beast Herd Ambush, so we'll go back to those scenarios after we finish Rituals of Ruin. But are there either favorite Rituals of Ruin or are there situations that you are looking for? Like, I want to pull the hero out away from the chaff and be able to shoot it off with Young Gore Raiders, as an example. How else do you use the Rituals? So... So my favorite rituals of ruin are warping curse and blood taunt, 
because, for example, Warping Curse, more straightforward. Being able to do free mortal wounds to an enemy can be really impactful. Maybe, like, let's say you do you cut yourself for D3 when your hero's off the board, you target an enemy like Foot Hero. Um, maybe you just roll five or six, and that just kills the hero. So it just messes with their plans. So really effective at doing that. But Blood Taunt is definitely, to me, the strongest one because being able to, like, force a unit to move a certain way is more impactful than sometimes just killing it. So, for example, when I played um, against OBR a lot, and if they give me first, I actually liked to pull, like, when Immortus Guard were a thing, I like to pull the Immortus Guard as farther to the as far as I can to the board edge. And because even though OBR isn't, like, the slowest army, some of their units are slow enough where it's, like, if you're able to, like, pull units, like, away from an objective or towards the board edge, it forces them to take an extra turn to move to where they want to get to go. Another use of Blood Taunt is, let's say your hero is on the board and you want to prevent a redeploy, you're able to actually drag the um, enemy unit into combat with the hero by with 2d6 if you get them within three. The only restriction is, is that that enemy unit cannot be in combat, and when you pull the... Um, enemy unit into the hero they those two cannot be within or the the enemy unit that's being pulled in cannot be within three of any other beast of chaos unit so it's kind of a it's a weird uh it's a niche restriction but like and it doesn't the opportunity doesn't present itself all the time but it's definitely come up enough where like it's helping me win my games so you have to think when you use blood taunt you have to think about okay when you move something towards the board edge or closer or closer to your hero what are you trying to accomplish from it? And that's that changes depending on how the game is going. By the way, I, I read. I'm, I'm just rereading the text there, and it does say uh, that you can carry out the heroic action in addition to any other heroic action. So that's the assumption that they can carry out heroic willpower, heroic blah 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 blah. Yeah. So uh, I, I see, like, it's just buried in a bunch. Like yeah, it's, bar- it's buried in a lot of text, so that's why, like, it does come up. Uh, any any other ones? Like, I remember when I was looking at them before, I'm like, some of them are really interesting. Some of them are, like, you know, the Alpha Instinct is interesting to be able to stop a unit from taking Battle Shock, you know, in, in a turn, which is neat. Um, the Ward, I thought, was okay. Like, uh, like, I wasn't, like, okay, I guess. Yeah, I... My problem with the Ward one is that if it was within until your next hero phase, then I really like it. But because it's only limited to like, you know, that turn, it's not that really impactful and you're much better off doing the other things. At least with the battle shock one, even though it's only during that turn, let's say if you're taking multiple combats on different units and because Beast of Chaos has a low bravery, sometimes I've even done the Alpha Beast Instinct just to make sure that battle shock doesn't happen because I'm fighting on multiple like friends with it, wholly within 12 of that hero. All right, a couple of uh, Beast Herd ambush examples now, and then we'll kind of move on. So let's say, for example, I am a castle army. Let's say I'm a traditional Lumineth or a Seraphon or a Zinch where I've castled up with a bunch of chaff. I've got uh, a juicy little center of like, a, I don't know, Lord of Change or Hurricanum or Teclas or like just some type of like wizard castle, which is very common right now. Do you have any thoughts around how you would use the Beast Herd Ambush? So if I'm playing against, like, castle or shooting armies, I generally put most of my army and 
an ambush because I don't want to be affected by like, let's say if I'm going at Seraphon, I don't want to be affected by their, you know, AOE, like they could spread out global mortal wounds with comments call to different units. And then that's triggers balance. So I try not to stay on board. At least maybe I have one or two units on board because, or if I'm going against Lumineth when they have a lot of Sentinels or Slanesh with Bliss Barbs, if they're not able to touch me, then it actually makes them play in a way where it's like, okay, they can't be as aggressive as they want to be. And maybe they won't get on objectives because of it. And because they're not able to um, essentially hurt me in their turn, in my turn, I can play very aggressive by using Ungor Raiders to clear their screens and then Bulgors charging, or they charge in the combat phase to avoid Unleash Hell. So that's like, that's how I generally deal with like castle armies and Feast of Chaos. The strengths of their army combined with their Rituals of Ruin lets us be really good at fighting elite armies or castle, or we're very good at like fighting through like shooting castles and just, I mean, we're known as a castle breaker army. All right, one more example. What let's say it's something like a uh, actually two more examples. Let's say it's uh Ossiak Bone Reapers with let's say a Mortis Guard or Necropolis Stalkers or a Gits list that's like heavy trolls, right? So lots of um small three six man blocks of, of troops running around the board. They don't take a lot, a lot of footprint, but they're durable as hell. So another strength of the army that I that uh, Beast Chaos is good at is um, because we don't want to take, like, um, we don't want to fight, we don't want to, uh, you know, we're not like Iron Jaws or get squigs where we want to like, just get stuck in and just fight. We want to take, um, we want to spread out the opponent, and because of how our Beast Herd Ambush works, if we're able to spread out the opponent, um, then they're not able, then we're able to just um, mess with their plans we're able to force them to like spread out their army. Like let's say they're a castle, but they have to get on objectives. So okay, then I have to leave my castle. And then if they have to go away from like, let's say a hero or like something that protects like those units, then like, 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 you know, like animalistic predators, Beast of Chaos units are able to just hop on those vulnerable units when we want to. Like, again, I wouldn't like, if I have to like think about it, like from, from the fluff, Beasts of Chaos do not take honorable fights. They take the fights they know that they can win. And that's how you're supposed to approach it as a player. You only take the fights that you know that you have a chance at winning. If it's a toss-up, you try to avoid those because, um, we're, again, we're susceptible to being have low saves and low bravery. Yeah. Due to our glass that, cannon nature. And it's great you've got the flexibility to respond where you think the weak point is as opposed to being forced to fight a fight that you don't want to fight because it's just where they've put the... <laughs> the points on the board yeah i think that's why i piece of chaos generally favor maps that are not um scrum in the middle because if we if we're forced to like scrum in the middle then then our opponents can take advantage of our weak saves and it almost forces us to have to rely on a um winning the priority from like bottom of the turn to the new top of the turn and i generally don't like relying on playing for a devil to win because our army doesn't need to do that. No, in fact, playing for the double to win is a terrible tactic. You should be playing to lose the... You should always have the mentality that you're going to lose the double so that if you do lose the double, you're not surprised that you've lost the double and you've got the appropriate buffs and you're ready to respond as opposed to playing for the double, not winning it, and then you feel like you've lost the game because 
you, you've, you've screwed yourself in your positions or your buffs or you don't have the tools to absorb the, the double. Yeah, and essentially because of how whatever our Legion's ability states, we have to come by the by the end of our turn two because if it gets to battle round three, all of our units are dead in ambush. So generally, you I actually want to go first as a Beast of Chaos player in turn one because I want to have a greater chance at winning the priority from one to two because I actually like to give my opponents a double because if most of my armies in ambush, they can't actually hurt, hurt me with a double. And then from two to three, if I'm playing for the bottom, I'm playing from the bottom of two, then I can threaten a double or at least position in a way where even if I don't win the priority from two to three, I'll be like, fine. It's, I'm glad you said that because that was literally going to be my next question is, come turn two, do you want to drop your army at the start of the top turn or would you prefer to go at the bottom? And I think... Again, in situations are going to vary, but if you can hold out to go bottom of turn two and then with some luck win the priority, that will give you a better yield than dropping at the start of turn two, then getting doubled from turn two to turn three if you get the choice. Yeah, and I think the double from two to three is always stronger than the double from one to two. How, but I will say in some matchup, like let's say if I'm going against like Seraphon or a castle shooting army, if I have a chance to take the double, then I will, because then um, I'm just able to knock out their ability to just be able to um, pep give me some pepper. Yeah, and obviously in Seraphon, you can reduce the amount of summoning if you can get to them earlier. But what about your command traits? Let's actually get into some of the nuance of the army, right? So do you have any favorite command traits currently? And I've got on the screen both your uh, General's Handbook um, choices for Antorian Locuses and your... Uh, Battletone, like, are they ones that you favor the most, and why? So, out of the, out of, so if I have to pick three command traits from all of these, I actually like Slake Fray, Reveler, Shaman of the Chilled Winds, and Bestial Cutting. So, to start off with Slake Fray, uh, Reveler. So, let's say, um, so that our general move, the move characteristic of our army lies between six to nine. If you're able to boost the um, movement by plus three, then everyone is moving between nine to 12 potentially, which is a massive boost in speed for the army, for an army that's already generally pretty fast. And because the only uh, requirement is you have to be within six inches of a terrain piece, not wholly within, just within six. And if your tables have like good enough terrain where it's like sizable, you're able to just take advantage of that speed and like be everywhere. So you generally want to take this command trait if you're actually playing a Beast of Chaos army that does isn't relying on ambush. There is ways to build the army around not just ambushing everything, which I'll go into later. So yeah, I really value this command trait because everyone getting plus three move and movement is you know one of the biggest things about you know how doing well in Age of Sigmar. And if you're able to move faster than your opponent, then you're able to get on top of objectives quicker. You're also able to dictate engagements when you want to. And yeah. And then if I have to talk about my second favorite command, or it's not, I wouldn't say second, but like my other favorite command trait is Shaman of the Chilled Winds. This is for a more niche kind of list if you want to rely on buffing your units with Horfrost or using Blizzard when you need it to be. But I think if you have a if you have a shaman like the Zangor shaman or the Bray shaman um, that knows you know all the spell lords, you're able to have enough flexibility to be to be able to cast the spell that you need at that time. And if I'm taking shaman of the chilled winds, then I've tried a list where I took the battalion and it's, and it's like it's been like successful. So 
that's why that command trait is i wouldn't always pick it but it's it's an it's interesting to me out of all these things and then finally my favorite command trait is bestial cunning because while our restriction is so our restriction from coming out of ambush is wholly within nine of a board edge bestial cutting allows you to pick one unit after deployment to come within out of seven inches anywhere on the board not wholly within a board edge anywhere on the board outside of seven inches so the usual combo i like to do is have a bulgors have a net so they bulgors have a natural plus one to charge and our allegiance abilities you get another plus one to charge when you come out of ambush or a setup so when you come out of ambush within outside of seven inches you actually only need a five inch charge to get to where you want to the fact that you're able to have like have any unit come within seven um can really like hinder your opponent's game plan and lets you get on top of and prevents your units from getting screened out as much as um yeah prevents your units from getting screened out so yeah so those are my three favorite command traits even though all the other ones do have like their uses but you have to build around those command traits yeah and and for folks if you're wondering how you do a five inch charge with the bull gores it's because bull gores with their musician get plus one to the charge then with your uh, allegiance abilities you get plus one to the charge when you set up so all of a sudden five so seven seven turns nine turns to seven turns to five uh which means you know statistically even without a re-roll you're going to probably hit the charge um if you have to re-roll use a cp then you definitely like unless you are really unlucky uh you will hit the charge if with bestial cunning and any stormcast player will know the value of a seven inch charge because like statistically it's like 50 50 so yeah love it um i was gonna say though one one that i'm surprised you didn't mention was the twist fray cursed beast given that you get to add the number of battle rounds to the casting role so given that you know you might have a hoarfrost you might have a blizzard you might have just one of your regular spells getting a multiple to cast may mean that either your cast is off the charts if you had a primal dice or it means you put your your cast your primal dice into your unbinds and still get off your spells um with with, with a really good dice roll if you're adding the battle round so i like twist twist fred curse piece more when arcane tome actually gave you an extra cast and then they faq that to not being not being the case so if you took arcane tome before I could make any of my Beast of Chaos one wizard casters to become two casters. That's what I saw more of a value. But because um, all of our wizards are one cast except the Zongor Shaman, who can only do it once per game, and then you can only get the extra cast if you're the Andor, if you go second in a battle round. It's just too situational where it comes up. And most of our spells are 12 inch range. So let's say, and you generally don't want your Shamans to be super close because. They have low saves and it's really easy to kill them. And you generally want your heroes alive as long as possible. So I used to like Twist Ray Crispies a lot. Now it's not as much. I will give a shout out to Skullfrey Gorehorn because um, let's say you put it on a Beast Lord, Doom Bull, or a Zangor Shaman. If they're, let's say you want to charge it in your general and then a Bray Herd unit like Zangor of Lightened or Bestigors, giving them more attacks is like helpful. But I think. Like Twist Fray Crispies, Skull Fray Gorehorn, and the rest of the command traits that I didn't mention, you really have to build around these command traits to make it work. Where I feel like with Bestial Cutting, Slake Fray, and Shaman the Childrens, you don't have to you don't have to revolve your entire list around those command traits as much. 
there's a lot of utility in, in the, the ones that you called out, which is, is, you know, for me, I always value utility. I'm, I'm never really a big fan of doing just one drop battle regimen, execute a plan, the end. I, I much prefer the, uh, the chess type of utility being able to respond to, to all matchups. Do you find yourself in a situation very often where you are taking a null stone adornment? You know, like you'd have to be avoiding your 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 shamans to 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 stumble into this, right? Yeah, and sadly, so when it comes to the rituals of ruin, so when it in the Allegiance ability, all rituals of ruin are within twelve inches to be able to do the effect. However, the Bray Shaman they extend their effect by six, so essentially you have an eighteen inch range for the Rituals of Ruin, and because um, most of our wizards are heroes outside of the Doom Bowl and the Beast Lord, um, you generally always want to take like at least a Shaman or two Shamans so you can take advantage of the fact of you know Magical Dominance and other things. Could you build a list that uses Nullstone because you have units like Cygors and things, and Beast of Chaos um, tactics are like diverse enough where you can just like not take Magical Dominance? Yes, but I personally wouldn't recommend it, although maybe someone will surprise me and be able to make a list around this. I think our casts are generally just too valuable to like not use, especially because we can use spells like Horror Frost and Blizzard. Maybe in like a Quake Fray, or if you were running like an all Doom Bull type list, sorry, all Bull Gore list, yeah. But I feel like you will probably have a Shaman or two, so... Um, I don't think I've seen very many lists without a wizard in beasts. Yeah, and Beasts of Chaos Army, um, aside from it for being an ambush army, it's also it also likes to play in a way like combined arms force. You want to have like multiple units that they all have a role to like work together. You don't we don't like to spam things because even though maybe if we spam a unit, they might be good at they're only good at one thing. Where I like to take a collection of units where they're good at multiple things, so I have a toolbox of like answers of how to respond to, to things. Yeah, that um, that's definitely kind of changed between old book and new book, where a lot of your allegiance ability was just thunderscorn, was just you know like it was very very regimented. Now that mixed force seems to be a lot more popular, which is great. Um, again, I I, I I talk from experience with gits, where it's just like play all the squeaks, like well I don't want to play all squeaks, I want squeaks and trolls and. Yeah. What are your spell laws? Let's let's talk the top three. Let's talk about the general's handbook ones before we get into your own. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start with the one that's probably going to be the quickest answer, and that is rupture. Do you see much value in rupture as a choice, not as shaman of the chill lands? Uh, no, <laughs> I saw it as a choice before because um, there was an interaction with the incarnate where you can rupture your own incarnate. So I did mess around like a degenerate, like other people did with rupture incarnate list. But um, they obviously, you know, that wasn't the intention of rupture to be able to rupture your own incarnate and then feed an other style. That interaction was ridiculous. And now they made it to only affect, you know, the always intention was you can make an enemy incarnate go wild, but because not a lot of people are taking incarnates nowadays because it's gotten really expensive and people have learned how to play around the incarnates. Um, I don't really look at rupture anymore. It's not yeah. really needed. It was a flash in the pan. Uh, we had fun while it lasted, but right now, would I take rupture as a choice? No, no. Yeah, I just even even like with endless spells, I don't see a lot of value in making them predatory. 
just I think the only reason why you would take rupture is if you're playing in your local meta and a good amount of people are taking card it's then like yeah but it's more of a super niche choice if otherwise no yeah 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 obviously if you got shaman of the chilled lands yeah makes you've got it right you use it when you yeah. need it Let's talk uh, Blizzard. Blizzard being the most obvious of them. You range of 12, you get it off, and it's 4d6 mortal wounds of goodness. So, sorry, yeah, you do a 4d6 mortal wounds of goodness. Um, do you use this often? Because you said that you don't like getting your wizards too close to combat, but this forces you to be within 12, and it obviously uh, you can no longer teleport uh, and then do Blizzard in the same turn. Not that you have a lot of teleports, if any, uh, but you definitely could turn two, drop out of ambush. If you go bottom, if you win priority turn three, then blizzard if you are in range. So the way, so I don't use blizzard offensively um, for the most part. I actually use it defensively in that, like, let's say um, my shaman is down and then they're usually behind like a chaff screen or behind my bulgors or like something like that. So I like Blizzard on my Shamans because it effectively turns them into a trading piece. So let's say if the opponent gets close to me and they don't like double me, for example, or they're not able to kill my Shaman for whatever reason, then it allows essentially to turn my 100-point Shaman or 120-point Zanger Shaman to essentially like a nuke. Like it just it lets me like, okay, well, I don't have any other good spells to cast. And it's like, it's more as if, like I don't rely on it. It's more like a... If this goes off, this is fantastic for me. If it doesn't go off, fine. But it allows me to essentially tell my opponent, hey, there's a chance that if you get within 12 inches of the Shaman, um, I could do 46 mortals to you, which could t entirely change the outcome of a game. And it could make opponents make different decisions, make, make them maybe not want to charge. And then it just gives... I think the the way I like to play Aegis Figmar is I like to give opponents um, more decisions to make and make it not... make how to like defeat me not straightforward and i think that's um one of the ways that you can do well at age of sigmar and also a trick that i like to do with blizzard is that even though you can't teleport anymore to do blizzard so we have a one of our rituals of ruin uh blood taught if they're within let's say if you have a bray shaman um if they're within 18 inches of you or if they're within 12 inches of you or let's say if you have two heroes uh you're able to pull that hero closer to the hero with blizzard and then just, you know, do your shenanigans. So <laughs> I love that. I love yeah, that's, that. That's a, so that's a dirty combo. So it's, while you can't teleport, you can still pull them closer to your blizzard. And if I see an opportunity, I'll do that. And it's interesting, right? Because the psychological threat, it makes it very much almost like a, a Gotrek where people want to stay out of a bubble of Gotrek because, you know, you need moves and obviously the charge. So the best way to to kill Gotrek is actually not to engage him at all and just keep this clear bubble. Blizzard can often be the same where people are like, I will try to avoid that 12-inch threat. And... Uh, like and and people think of the psychological well it could be 46 but failing the many steps of having to be within 12 to roll a casting value of 12 not roll a bunch of ones and then to pull it off yeah like like i said for me it's not a strategy it's more of a uh trick up my sleeve it's more like a plan b it's more as if like okay if this happens that'll be really great for me if it doesn't at least the threat of it is like sometimes the threat is better than the actual like outcome that's what I've learned. Uh, 
100%. What about Hallfrost? Because one of the interesting things with your army, given you have the ambush, is you're not going to be able to Hallfrost, let's say, your Bulgore, get their attack up, um, so their their hit up, or whatever it might be, then charge them in from from ambush. You really have to walk them up the board, or you're playing in subsequent rounds after the, the ambush. So do you find value in Hoarfrost? And if you do, are there particular units that might benefit more than others? I do find value in Hoarfrost, but I think unlike Blizzard, where like in most of my lists, I just put Blizzard on all my wizards because it just lets them be cheap hammers. Hoarfrost, I really have to build around that spell because like you said, I have the unit has to be on the board to be affected by it. But um, there are other units in the army that hit hard um, that really ex- that benefit extremely for horror frost, so you're not reliant on having your bulgore. So some shoutouts I will have are Slongors, um, Zangor Enlightened, and the Gorgon. So a lot of the army base hits on fours. So and that means we hate minus ones to hit. We don't. We always want to use save CP for all on attack. Horror frost essentially lets us. Let's say if we if we're able to roll a one or a two, we can make a unit hit on twos, which dramatically increases the output of the army. Because at best, most of the time, most of our army can only hit on threes at best with all out attack or something or damned. But if we're able to hit on twos, that dramatically increases the output of Slongors, who have thirteen attacks, two damage each, or Z- or six Zangor and Lightning, who have nineteen attacks, two damage each, and then it just lets us like push out damage from a unit that otherwise usual math doesn't allow so i do like so i do like horror frost a lot you just have to build your um list around that spell where let's say with blizzard you you generally don't have to it's just there just in case all right can i tell you my favorite unit to put it on and you can tell me if i'm dumb or not yeah you ready what is it you ready yeah i'm gonna pull pull out a a perla are you ready yeah gauze with a pair of hack and blades when Galatian veterans were a thing, I really, I would have really loved that interaction. But sadly, because GVs aren't a thing anymore, um, they can't really swing as much over it. But um, I've seen other players, for example, that play piece of chaos like Jacob Brandon. You know, it's a, it's a really good East Coast player make use of that because I've seen him like try the combo, and it's definitely effective. Not my favorite unit to put it on, but because if with paired axes, they have a lot of attacks. It allows them to be a cheap hammer. So, yeah, no, I definitely see the use of it. Because they're three attacks each, hitting on fours, wounding on threes, no rent for one. Okay, very unassuming profile. If you roll the one or a two, then now they're hitting on twos, wounding on threes. And with the... Um, Herdstone, with your, yeah. With your Herdstone, you'd have at least rent minus one. But mm. if you got the, th- the five or the six, you could make them rent three, Issue all that attacks. They're hitting on threes, wounding on threes. Are they 25 mil or are they 32 more bases? They're 32s. That's why Ooh. I like them a little less. I was thinking yeah. they were 25s. I was, okay. I yeah. was thinking they were 25s. But still, three attacks each on on even a unit of 10. Like, it's not bad. It's definitely not, but there's like there's there's better units where um, we could put Horfrost on, like I said, because Zangor Lions Longers have two damage. And then Gorgons, they can have potentially three damage each on each of its attacks. And then because Gorgons are able to effectively give themselves Ren 3, even by round 2 or Ren 4, 
making them hit on making some BOC units hit on twos, or even let's like let's say if you already have Bulgors on the board, because sometimes the best play with Beast of Chaos is actually to not charge sometimes. It's to threat, it's to like screen and then set up your hammers, and then it's like, okay, I could charge you, but or you have to get through my screens to be able to charge me, and then I can just charge you back. And that's when you, that's when you want to use horror frost. Unless you screen with uh with Ungor, then you can just in the combat phase retreat instead of fighting, which is yeah, uh, which is which is awesome. Yeah, it's like fairies. That rule is fantastic. Yeah, it's neat. Like steal an objective, get out of combat. Damn it! I, I, I wish the Gore theory worked. I'm like, yeah, twenty five three attacks. This is hot. Uh not not so much. So yeah, we talked the, about the benefit. Gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the base size prevents that unit from being effective. Otherwise, I agree with you. Made, made sense in my head until we put the, the base into, into theory. But you talked about Blizzard. You talked about Hoarfrost. Is it worth more than the Thunderscorn or Brayherd wizard spells? Because there's some good stuff. You know, I remember Tendrils of Astrophy kind of popped out to me very, very quickly. There's a couple of good spells. I'm like, you know what? It's a hard trade. Or... Do I go something like Warlord or uh, Command Entourage getting me Magnificent to go two spells on my Wizards? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, I think I start off with Thunderscorn. I, so the, all the spells are actually, like, the effects are actually really strong. Because we don't have an innate bonus to the cast, that's why, like, I don't like to rely on them too much, even though they're all, like, if you look at them objectively, they're really powerful spells. Especially, um... Raging Storm and Tendrils of Atrophy, but when I think about Thunderscorn, the, the only problem is, is that only the Shagoth can cast those spells, and the Shagoth is 275 points for a hero. That's 10 wounds on a 4-up save. And you don't have any bonus to cast, and he's a 1-cast. So, if the Shagoth is cheaper, then I would like the spells more, especially Hailstorm, because able to have a move runner charge was insane, and that's what made the Shagoth so good in our last book. But because everyone was taking the Shagoth last book, that's why they've over that's what that's why they've overpriced him because of the sins of the past. So sadly, is, I'm not really looking at Thunderscorn as much because the Shagoth's too expensive. Which is funny too, because people were just using the um, the Shagoth to generate primal magic, the, the primal cordic. Yeah, the summoning points because he the always natural. So they so he so he always used to heal one wound at the end of every um, combat phase. Now he heals on a two up D three. So it's even better, especially with Rituals of Ruin, because you take D3 Mortals. So I think that's why they price him to be as expensive, because he actually synergizes with um, taking more wounds, because he just heals them back up, unlike the other heroes. However, it's just that he's just too expensive, and our army has transformed from being a Horde army, where we took a bunch of bodies on board, to be like being almost like a semi-elite army in a weird way. All right, before you move on to the uh, Bray Herd, let me just ask you really quickly about the Dragon Ogre Shagoth. Currently, it sits at 270 points. What is the price point that you would be looking for to um, to, to introduce you to this list? Honestly, what's the, minimum, like... what's the minimum? Not like some ridiculous number. Like, what's the minimum you'd need to see it? I mean, I think I think my answer is going to be ridiculous either way, to be honest, Coach. But uh, it would have to be two ten. Okay. Because big drop. It. The reason why I say that because the rest of our army is so expensive, in that like you can't. We only the the Doom Bull, for example, is one eighty. He's only 
that expensive is because of his really powerful command ability. If he didn't have that command ability, he'd be overpriced. The rest of our heroes are like 100 or 120 because, you know, if they're like cheap wizards, that's what they do. The Shagoth's attack profile, in addition to his tools, isn't enough to justify being almost like 300 points. Because if you compare him to like, let's say three Dragon Ogres or a 210 or two, or three nits of, or three, or MSU Bulgors for 210, they do a lot more than what the Shagoth does. And because he's a one cast, and because of the spells that we want off, it's, even with Primal, it's not reliable that he'll get the most out of his points. That's why I feel like he has to be significantly cheaper for me to look at him. I think you're being a bit too hard on the Dragon Ogre Shagoth, right? Like when I re reread the War Scroll, you know, it shrugs spells and endless spells on a four up. You can heal D3 wounds at the end of the combat phase on a two up. And then on a two up, you can deal D3 mortal wounds to your opponent. It's a 10 wound wizard that casts one spell, unbinds one spell, decent save. And it has both a shooting attack and some melee. So, um, not, I don't know. Like, I, I, yeah, 270 is a, a, a bit rich for it right now, but you know, 230 to 40 might, might not be too bad in the current meta. So, to clarify, I don't think his profile is awful. I think for me, it's just the points because the way I think about points, this army is that, like, yes, he's a really good war scroll, but the problem is at that price point for a hero, you have to really build around that hero. And Beast of Chaos doesn't want to build around their heroes. We want to be able to be um, a tool set. We want to be able to like take as many things as we need to, especially because with our low saves, and yes, he is 10 wounds on a 4-up save, but in the context of um, damage in this game and like compared to other tankier armies, he's not as tanky. Um, where like he's not as survivable as he like needs to be because if we when Beast of Chaos lose our units, we can't come back. It's not like we're playing old Beast of Chaos where we can just rally and then just summon and not care. Um, we care very much now because every body that we lose, it hurts us. That's another like weakness of Beast of Chaos. We we actually really want to keep our stuff alive as much as, as long as possible. I think the interesting question here is, is the Dragon Ogre Shagoth worth two Great Brace Shamans that you can put in Antorian Acolytes Battalion? Like generating the extra CP, so to have extra primal dice, uh, having an extra spell cast. I think that's really ultimately the question. And folks, you can listen and you make the decision. I think most people would probably go Great Bray Shaman currently. Yeah. But I think the War Scroll is interesting enough with the Shagoth to be considered. But I agree with you 100%. 270 is definitely too high. Yeah. I Like I said, so some units in Beast of Chaos are overpriced. Every unit in Beast of Chaos has an amazing War Scroll. It just comes down to how much they cost, and then you just have to build around it. That's that's how the balance of the army is. And, you know, it's like it's good, but I think when it comes to um, what you want to do as Beast of Chaos, you never want to put your... I mean, okay, may, I'll you'll look at my list later and kind of laugh at what I'm about to say, but you don't want to have too many eggs in one basket. Yeah, but, and I feel like, and if you are going to in Beast of Chaos, you want to make sure that they're going to make up for all their points. The Shagoth sadly doesn't. If he had an extra cast, I would consider it more. But because he's only a one cast, and he just, and because Bray Shamans can do their rituals with him within 18 inches, and if I don't have to take a 
Bray, if I don't have to take a Shagoth, I could take two Bray Shamans or an, or a unit of six Longors, for example, which would be 260, or a, or a Gorgon, which is 240, which like just does more in other ways. Like that's kind of where I'm coming from. And because, like I said, spell casting isn't the strength of the army, and I don't like relying on it. Um, that's why I don't advocate it. But I think for me, because I'm a um I'm a Timmy slash spike kind of player, I like to play around reliability as opposed to okay, where Johnny, for example, made they they like playing around combos. I don't like playing around combos too much. I like playing around the fact that each role has does its different you know, does its role really well. And I know that they're always going to do it their job regardless. But that's just how I play. So that's I kind of both agree and disagree. I actually have no yeah. real opinion when it comes to the shag off. I personally wouldn't put it in there, but I just don't, I, yeah. Anyway, I think we talked too long, but I think, yeah. that, <laughs> no, but I, I, I think within that discussion was really good insight around how you think about this selection. Cause you're right. At an individual war scroll level, there's some really good choices and there's some really interesting things. But is it worth it ultimately when you're in, in list construction? You know, is it synergizing and working the way you want it to work? Because um, when you look at, let's say, for example, and this c- comes up often with the Cygor, the Cygor individually is a really cool war scroll, but it's often one of the units that gets dropped from people's lists really quickly because it's not doing a lot of stuff for their army and maybe it's too many points when they could double down on more other things. So um, there's some, just some good, good insight. I just want to call out from that. Yeah. I think list building with BOC is always like, it's always interesting. It's always a fun challenge because you want to make sure you maximize all of the war scrolls that you're taking in an army and the points to its best potential. Yeah. Yeah. What about your favorite wizard spells from Brayherd? Is it tendrils? Is it uh, vile tide? Like, what's what are your favorites? So, I guess with now with primal dice being a thing, I actually like tendrils of atrophy again because um, with primal dice you're actually able to get it off. And like I said before, before with blizzard, if you're able to drag a unit closer to your hero and then get the spell off, get it. Your entire army getting plus one damage when mo- a lot of your units are damage two goes with the damage three changes the DPS of the army drastically. But when it comes to more reliable spells to cast, I like primal, uh, not prim- I like vicious Stranglethorn's war because making sure a unit can't pile in is always really effective. That's how Nurgle and other armies do really well. And then I also really like vile tide, just being able to make a unit take D three more wounds and not re- be able to receive commands until the end of that turn, make sure they can't all defense and make sure they can't redeploy. And then, you know, it makes it. So yeah. So those are the three spells that I really like. The other spells are also, um, they're good too, but they're more niche and you have to like assume that for example, primal dominance, you're going against the monsters. If we go back to a monster meta, then I'll look at primal dominance. If wild rampage, I love that spell. The only problem is that like some beasts of chaos units, they have things that they have their attacks, or they have abilities that proc on sixes to hit. So then you have to choose between Wild Rampage or whatever those abilities are. Yeah, but if you yeah. take mostly, like, let's say, Zangors or Bestigors, then that that's why you would take that spell. And then if you like taking monster-heavy stuff, like uh, Gorgons, then you would take Titanic Fury. Yeah, I don't mind Titanic Fury if you're trying to get the most out of, let's say, a Gorgon. Maybe you want a whole Frosted as well, but uh yeah i i would probably agree with you like vile tide tendrils um i i do like uh primal dominance uh 
but the meta isn't at that point yet where monsters are dominating again. If if Suns um, start dominating again now, they've got the armies of uh, renown, and you know who knows when Beast of Chaos, Beast of Chaos, uh, Beast Core Raiders of the Ogres kind of if they get some boosts, who knows? Maybe Primal Dominance might be worth it again. But you're right, it's probably not high priority right now. Yeah, but I mean, objectively, even like when, I know we had a biz, big discussion about the Shagoth. All the spells are really effective and like they're strong objectively. What I like about them, especially though, is that they're situational. There's no auto-include spells. There's no spells you just don't look at at all. They're all, like, situational, and I think that's why I think Games Workshop did a really good job of making not only the War Scrolls, but the spells um, really diverse. So you can just take them whenever there's a meta change or you want to try things. So props to them. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You've got tools to respond. Do you have a favorite artifact at all? Without going into all of them, I think we could like, like I think it's pretty, very clear, like there's one or two probably I, clear winners. I think for me, there's two clear ones, or no, three actually. So I think the best one is Brave Last Trumpet, obviously, because you get to summon a unit of Ungor Raiders, Ungors, or Gores. Gores, when they charge, if they outnumber the unit that they're charging, they make them fight last of a three up. Ungors, they can retreat instead of fight, so it allows you to do moon shenanigans. And Ungor Raiders, it gives you more shooting and more board presence just to be around the objective and score. This is definitely the strongest, and I think what makes it strong, too, is that even if you roll a 1 on the summon, they come at the end of the next moon phase. It's not that if you roll a 1, it just doesn't happen. They come later, but generally, you always want to take this artifact because because we're a semi-elite army now, we want as many bodies as we can on the board. And then the other two artifacts I really like, it's kind of a toss-up between those two. They're not like, they don't, there's not, one is not strictly better than the other. It just depends on what you can fit if you take a Warlord Battalion. Southern Rack Helm. So the synergy I really like about this is um, if you if you charge, if a hero charges you, on a two-up, you make the fight last. So they, so let's say if you have a Doom Bull. The Doom Bull can make anyone with the Bulgore keyword, which is himself, Bulgore's, Cygors and Gorgons charge at the start of every combat phase, including your opponents. So let's say some, let's say a, let's say you charge Bulgors in, and then they're about to get charged. If your hero is nearby, he can give himself the um, command ability to countercharge. So he can essentially countercharge into a unit that charged a BOC unit and make the fight last on a two-up. And suddenly that BOC unit is protected and they're able to kill the unit that charged them. So it gives a lot of like protection in combat, and it makes your opponents think twice about charging. So that's what I really like about that. It's very, it's really great tech. And then bleeding gnarl staff, I really like too because let's say on some tables the objectives or terrain pieces are like large. So so I like putting this on a Zangor shaman who flies around sixteen, and he could still do this ability even if he runs. So let's say if he runs, um, he goes move 16 to any obje- any terrain piece or objective on a two-up, every enemy unit takes D3 mortal wounds. Because the effect does not affect Beast of Chaos units. So it's it's a way to generate a lot of, like, mortal wounds in the in the army outside of, like, spell casting and Bulgore mortal wounds. What about with the height of, like, at the moment, we've got a lot of death on uh, doing really well, especially OBR and um, Soulblight, and who knows what's happening with Feck? Do you see value in uh, the Axe of Morgoth? Um, no, because 
it it's not so the really problem is that like it only war rolls are not affected or cannot be made by that by weapons from that hero it's not like the corn one where it just turns off ward saves in three of the bearer it only turns off ward saves if the hero makes attacks into the unit and generally our heroes like for let's say the doom bull he only has three attacks like on threes and threes so not like especially powerful and then the beast lord only has like five attacks still a good profile for a foot hero but the fact that it the fact that it doesn't turn off ward saves just within three of that hero and it only turns off ward saves with any attacker to me it has way less value than doing potentially d3 mortal wounds to within a six you know within six inch radius or brave last trumpet where you summon a unit or you make it or you fight last where you're able to create multiple combats where they can't touch your low save units so that's my thoughts on um that artifact that's yeah, and look, Brave Blast Trumpet is probably my favorite, being able to bring on a bunch of troops, especially since you can't summon them anymore. And it can just help you, especially in the later game or even in the early game, there's a lot of utility in that, which I dig. Um, and as I already alluded to with spells, I don't know if taking an extra artifact right now is the best choice. I do prefer to take the extra spell and dip into both the... Uh, you know, the lore of the General's Handbook, as well as my own army's lore. So uh, second artifact isn't always uh, the right choice, but I also do like the Slither Helm Rack being able to, the Rack Helm being able to do the strike last. So I, yeah. I, I agree there. Yeah, I mean, generally I like to, it's a toss-up between if you want the extra artifact or you knowing an extra spell. Like, both are good for Beast of Chaos lists. I guess the question is you don't have a lot of double casters right so it's yeah. more about the, it's more about the utility as opposed to being able to maximize all of the spells in your your selection yeah what about these what are these gray phrase are there some that are better than others right now or do you find that all herd is just too good or like you know like what, what are you thinking about when you look at the the the, the great phrase so it's funny. I remember when I first looked at the book, I thought Allherd was the obvious contender of being the strongest because being able to bring back D3 plus three lets you play like a Horde army again. Like, for example, let's say if you play Allherd, you give you take a unit of Gores with shields. So they, they're a four up. So if you take shields, they go from a five up base save to a four up base save. So if you all defense them, they could be a three up um, save on all defense. And if you take a big block of them, not only do they base rally on five up, they have a five up rally on their um, musician or banner bearer. They can bring, they can return D three plus three at the end of every battle shock phase. So it lets you have a lot of resiliency when the army doesn't let you have it. Um, but because I've played a lot of games with the army at this point, I actually like dark walkers the most because being able to teleport a unit, even after you bring your entire army on ambush, being able to teleport a, a chaff unit of ungor, ungors, gores, or raiders anywhere on the board lets you threaten objectives. It lets you um, play for the board, and it lets you play for battle tactics like surround and destroy and other things. And a trick, and a thing with um, dark walkers is that when you you get the plus one to charge when you come out of ambush or you do a setup. So let's say I want to charge a unit of let's say. I need a unit of gores to be somewhere to make something fight last. So I teleport a unit of gores, so then they get a plus one to charge. So now they just need an eight-inch charge. And I believe, from what I remember, they have a plus one to charge on their war scroll, so they actually need only a seven-inch charge to, to make something fight last. Spicy. That's, yeah, so like, it's a lot of like good tech. 
And then being able to teleport a shooting unit of Ungor Raiders lets you, like, um, threaten, like, foot heroes to take screens. So, to me, Dark Walker stands out as the king because right now it lets you play for battle tactics easier when we look at these Chaos Battle Tactics and the GHB Tactics where you don't have to kill your units to win. I was going to say this plays into the battle tactics really nicely. Yeah, you can build around all herd and have these, like, you know, just not undiable, but certainly um, uh, units that just keep regenerating and you got extra bodies on the board. But for me, the utility of moving around the board through Dark Walkers you have, because you have no natural teleports is a great little rule. i got to ask you, though, Gave Spawn. So we talked Quake Frey, and Quake Frey is very obvious. Cygors become priests. Priests know an extra spell, a uh, prayer. The prayer is an uh, earth shatterer that does a bunch of mortal wounds around an objective. It's neat. They, 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 it might be interesting uh, ability for the current magic meta, but they're obvious what you're building around. The yeah, it also makes the um, Cygors and it makes Gorgon's battle line. So you don't have to invest in like taking Ungor's like, you know, battle line which lets you have more options, which, you know, and we have a quick fray list and uh, can't wait to go in. Can't wait to go into that later. But right, yeah, let me, um, let me, let me move to Gabe spawn. I oh, was yeah, trying to like, sorry. I was trying to just acknowledge quake. Fray sorry. Fray. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying yeah, to, I, I got, I got excited, but yeah, Steed, yeah, let's go to right. Gabe spawn. Steed of Gabe spawn. So Gabe spawn uh, allows you to have this interesting unit of three chaos spawns, which is called the gibbering congregation. Do you see much play in this? Like, uh, obviously, that would take up your three battle line choices. So, knock that out of the park. Battle lines now handled by three chaos spawns. I really like Gave Spawn because of the fact that when you take a unit of Gibbon Congregation, if you just take that unit of three spawn, that's not only does it, like you said, fill your battle line requirements, each spawn is an MSU unit in addition. So the way you play Gave Spawn is that you want to take a bunch of... So even though, like I said earlier, Beasts of Chaos generally don't like to trade. However, Gave Spawn lets you take enough like um, cheap units to be able to trade units. Because if you look at the base War Scroll of a um, Morgarite Chaos Spawn, that's a part of the Gibbering Congregation. Um, it, has, it has D6 shots, 3s and 3s, Ren 1, 2 damage each. So if you take several of those units, they actually have a lot of shooting... And not, in addition, when they're in combat, if they're within one inch of an enemy unit, they reduce attacks by one. This doesn't have a limit. So if you're able to dogpile like two or three Chaos Spawn or even four Chaos Spawn onto a hammer unit that has a lot of attacks, you reduce all their attacks to one. And then if they're stuck fighting Chaos Spawn, they're forced to split their attacks between Chaos Spawn. And that reduces the output of the unit immensely. And then because they're all MSU, it also lets you play for Surround and Destroy easily. Um, intimidate the invaders and other like beasts of chaos like battle tactics and if and you don't have to spam spawn entirely you can take enough spawn where you're able to take other like hammer units without investing into like chat ungor ungors or ungor raiders and other things it's, it definitely revolves around a debuffing play style i liked it a lot more before soul blight uh seraphon and other um army books came out where they're able to do aoe mortal wounds or like let's say corn. I don't like playing this against corn because each dead spawn is just free blood tie. So mm, I think cool. right now the meta isn't friendly to Gave Spawn, but it's definitely when when the book first came out, when the meta was more friendly to Gave Spawn, it had a, it has a lot of play. And I actually like playing Gave Spawn into the Beast of Chaos Bearer because 
Beast Chaos hate debuffs, and that's what gay spawns rely on around. I also really like the run and charge mechanic under it, and the spawn is much more consistent than the regular spawn. So if you look at the regular spawn and go, eh, it's all right. When you look at the, the Gave spawn, um, spawn, it is much more consistent as a profile, and it has some extra rules, yeah, as you've said. I, I, they I, move, I, I don't mind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they move 10 inches. So also, to introduce some synergies, if you take the Slake Frey command trait, they get to move 13 inches. So potentially, they move 13 inches, and they have an 8-inch shooting range. So they essentially have a 21-inch threat range, which makes them really effective and a really solid trading phase. And they can run and charge. They can't run and shoot, but they can run and charge. So some 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 nice yeah. spicy meatballs. Yeah, I think right now the nice thing about um, the army or that subfaction is even though the meta, the meta isn't friendly to them now, at some point the meta will become friendly to them and then Gabe Spawn will, will come back. So It's a very easy unit to build around. And as we've said as well, it unlocks uh, a lot of your points in other areas. So I, I do like that ability of the Gabe Spawn as well. But... I'd probably tend to agree Dark Walkers would probably be my favorite choice at the moment, uh, especially with the battle tactics uh, as a selection. Yeah. Are you a fan of Antorian Acolytes or the Wizard Finders of Antor? Because, like I mentioned earlier, we like to have our heroes off-board. Um, I sadly don't like the Battalion as much in Beast of Chaos, but if you build your heroes being on the board, like let's say in a Gave Spawn list, where in Gave Spawn... Um, you'd like to actually have most of your army on the board, then you would take this battalion, for example. But I, but I guess the other problem with this battalion is it generally competes with the Warlord Battalion, which I really like in Beast of Chaos. I was going to ask you why, but I'll just save it to your list, I think. Uh, I think the Antorian Acolytes is a very easy battalion for you to fill. So if you wanted two Great Bray Shamans in there, or three, that would allow you to do a bunch of cool things. But your trade-off is you want them on the t on the table, or you're really only going to benefit from this from turn um, three onwards. Yeah, which still might be enough for you, like you know, being able to really have it in that critical round and beyond. And they haven't taken damage because they've been off the board potentially for turn one, turn two. Could actually work really work in your favor. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I think it's you essentially have to decide if you want Warlord Battalion or Endorian Acolytes. So that's just kind of the decision that it comes down to for you Beast Chaos players out there. You can't do both? Like, why Why couldn't you do both? Um, I think the problem is that you just have to invest too many points into heroes when you when it's more important to invest, in my opinion, to invest um, more into units. At, in my opinion, you want at least two or three heroes, that's it, and then you take the rest as hammers because the heroes in Beast of Chaos are all support pieces. Even the Doom Bull who like looks like a combat hero. He's not actually a combat hero. He's more of a support piece of anything. That's, right, so your methodology is, yeah, so your methodology is the less points in heroes, the better, because that enables you to have more troops on the board, and that's really where you're projecting your power. Yeah. Okay. Is Are you picking grand strategies from uh, your battle tome, or do you like things like spellcasting savant or slaughter or sorcery? I, so the the grand strategy that reigns supreme to me here is desecrating Brayherd. When you complete this, when you complete this grand strategy, if you have two or more objectives, and if those the objectives are contested by any friendly Brayherd unit. So most of your army has the Brayherd keyword outside of Bulgors, uh, Sigors, Gorgons, and then Dragon Ogres. So this is a very 
it's a so grant strategies have become a lot harder in this GHB, and especially a lot of a lot of um, armies are trying to figure out which grant strategy to take. And I feel like out of all the grand strategies, Desecrating Breaker is generally pretty reliable to get, especially because of like, let's say you're playing Dark Walkers or um, All Herd, where you're like, at least you have enough chap units on the board or your heroes. So shamans have the breaker keyword. So as long as you control two objectives and you have like, let's say even a, a small foot hero or a unit chap on it, you there's a high chance you'll get this grand strategy. In my personal experience, I've been able to get this grand strategy most of the time. It's proven to me to be the most reliable grand strategy out of all the um, grand strategies out there. Because if I have to look at spellcasting savant, I do like spellcasting savant, but with how squishy our army is, we. So if this makes sense. We don't want our unit to die, but if if a but if a unit is about to die, we want to be able to make sure that it dies with a purpose. Even our heroes, like if, if a hero or a unit did its job, then you know, then you know you're happy. You don't want to have a grand strategy where you you cannot afford to sacrifice your hero when you need it to happen. So that's why I like Desecrating Brayherd because as long it lets me be uncommittal, it lets me you know I don't I'm not forced table with opponent as long as I kill enough and just play enough for the objectives, I'll be able to have this grand strategy on lockdown. With the rise of Seraphon right now and, you know, being able to just do mortal wounds uh, across the board, spellcasting Savant really is a risky play if you're taking it to a tournament because if you come to that matchup, it's very easy to pick off your Wizard General, who's an Entorian Locust, so less than 10 wounds, and just, just chip away and it'll die. Um, yeah. We also don't have any bodyguard mechanics, so it's unfortunate that like you know if you lose your also when you're cutting yourself d3 there's a chance you could kill your own hero by doing that and you can deny yourself a grand strategy uh would you use protect the herdstone that, that seems like an interesting one as well um i if there if if so many armies weren't able to just teleport to it or get within quick enough i would value it more because i really valued it last book where um i think the only Thing about a grand strategy was they just had to not smash the herdstone but now because it's within if you just end within nine inches of it it's easier to like deny and i don't like them having to have a chance to you know deny my i don't like i guess what i say is i don't so beast of chaos army likes to play around the board sorry i was mumbling my words um we like to spread be spread out around the board we don't like sitting by something to protect it that's not how our army plays we like we're, we're not a uniform army defending like a castle or something. We are, we're animals. We're around. We just want to be in our own territory. We don't want to be um, protecting something because it's, it's anti-synergistic with how we want to play our battle tactics and our game plan. So that's kind of my take on that grand strategy. I feel the same way with my protect the loon shrine. I don't like the idea of having to protect it. And I don't have that many abilities to to project power. Like I don't have long strikes in Git. So I feel the exact same way with protect the hearthstone. Yeah. Seems like a good idea, but I don't want to be castling up protecting in the old book where you were summoning from it and you wanted to protect it. And you probably had a lot more of the rend power. Yeah. But Otherwise, at the moment, yeah, I think desecrating Brayherd is probably the the nicer one. Yeah, and now the Hearthstone, um, it only gives the extra rend. It doesn't give the four up rally or anything anymore. 
and the red is just battlefield wide. So most of the time, I honestly just stick it in the corner and just let it do its thing. But if I know that they, that they don't have a monster, I like putting the Herdstone near an objective because there is a battle tactic where I just have to kill something within 12 of the Herdstone. So, you know, it's just something to play around for deployment. Do you find there are particular battle tactics that you use more than others? Again, situation, matchup, battle plan, yada, yada, yada. But are there ones that you will, especially turn one, right? Turn one is the one that it's gotten a lot of harder since uh, in this particular season. So I think the ones I generally like to do turn one are magical dominance because let's say they're not in range. I just get the spell off. I don't have to interact with the opponent's cool. The other one I also like to get is reduced savagery because let's say I pick a chaff unit. I make my hero take D3. They take D6 mortal wounds. And then because I can do my ritual start of the hero phase, I can see how many mortal wounds a enemy unit take before I pick reduced savagery because if I pick this tactic i have to make sure that whoever is the target of a ritual rune is dead by the end of turn so if i do enough mortal wounds to like a chaff unit or a hero then i can have unger raiders shoot at the start of the hero phase turn one to make sure i get that tactic easily and then it just allows me to be in a better position to not overcommit myself to get tactics another one i also potentially like to do turn one kind of situational is um intimidate the invaders or eight of the wilderness because if you notice the theme with a lot of these tactics, outside of um, Trample to Mulch and Reduces Savagery, we actually don't have to kill things to um, win you know, win the game, especially with the GHB tactics. And of the GHB ones, are there ones that you use often? Is it like, you know, Bait and Trap, Lead, lead into the Maelstrom, Surround and Destroy, and obviously Intimidate? Are they the, the traditional ones that you kind of rotate through? My go-tos are Surround and Destroy because, let's say if I'm playing Dark Walkers, I can just teleport a unit to that board edge and guarantee the tactic. And when we come out of Ambush, we're wholly within nine of the board edge anyway. So, like, let's say um, I get the double from two to three or whatever, and my unit's are already out of Ambush. I just pick three units that are already by the board edge, and I get my tactic. Uh, magical Dominance, like we said before, I like doing that a lot. Uh, Lead into the, the Maelstrom, I like doing it with, like, a Chaff unit or a, and a hero if I'm charging something weaker than those things. And Intimidate the Invaders is generally easy to get, because let's say if I'm coming out of Ambush, then I can just come outside of my territory and then just get my tactic. So, yeah. No, I like it. Obviously, again, situation and, and things decided. But, you know, again, you want to be in combat, right? So bait and, bait and trap, great one. You've got a lot of movement. So uh, between the General Sandbook and the... Uh, Battle time, you've got plenty to choose from. I feel like there's a lot for you to choose from here. Yes, I think that's what makes Beast of Chaos have the flexibility to do well at events right now, despite our just like our balance, despite our balance win rate, because we're able to score. We were able to essentially have enough tactics where I I'm not exactly worried about running out of battle tactics. I always know that I have something I could score, and that's what makes the army really reliable. Because, like, I think most games I actually get five tactics most of the time. Maybe at most, like, if I'm dropping some tactics, four. So yeah. really important for, like, let's say in some packs, like Old Town Throwdown Pack or Differential, where scoring is, like, especially secondary objectives is important. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, you're really thinking about the list build and how you can get those five out of five if you want to do it well at a tournament. And also having a lot of choices, right? You know, you don't have to kill something. And as you said, there's so much that you can do without interacting with the enemy 
that gives Beast of Chaos a lot of flexibility at tournaments. Yeah. Like, like I said, with Beast of Chaos, you generally don't need a table to win. You just need to kill enough while you score, I think. So we've got a couple of lists to go through. Um, I'd love to hear from you just some of the combinations and why you built the list or how it kind of works. So uh, I'll go through the first one. It's a Dark Walkers list with Desecrating Brayherd and the Triumph is Bloodthirsty. You've got a Doom Bull who's the general with Bestial Cunning. You've got a uh, Beast of Chaos Zangor Shaman with the Bleating Nile Staff and the Merciless Blizzard. We've got ourselves the uh, the Great Bray Shaman with the Bray Blast Trumpet and Rupture. Is that correct? No, I, um, no it's supposed to be uh, Blizzard as well. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah, I, maybe I sent you, I accidentally sent you the wrong output. Um, it should be Blizzard. Yeah, I, okay, I obviously, when you sent me the slides, you asked me if everything was right. Um, no, it's supposed, right. To, be, it's supposed to be. All right, blizzard. so we, we, we've got double blizzard here. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm like, maybe, thankfully, uh, we can, thankfully we can edit this before uh, the keep, video comes out. No, I'm keeping it there. Um, so you've got nine, you've got nine bull gores, you've got uh, ten ungores, ten ungore raiders, ten ungore raiders, ten ungore raiders, uh, six beasts of chaos, zangor enlightened, six beasts of chaos, zangor enlightened, and three zangor fiendbloods yeah so this so this is the list i have um it's taken me a while to like build up to this point but this this list has been the one that's proven to be the most um it's gotten me the most results gotten me several four ones at this point this season and it's gotten it got me the six two record at nova so it's been it's been tried and proven so yeah so what i like about this list is that all my you know all of my artifacts and command traits are spread out across my three heroes so even if i let's say i lose one of my heroes i didn't lose like i haven't lost a lot of enhancements on the hero so doom bull is just he's just there to have bestial cutting to make my nine bulgors generally come outside of seven inches anywhere on the board and that's 630 points of just beef and just pure damage i don't i think nine bulgors actually does the most damage in this entire game because there are four attacks each with paired axes and then six is to hit do two more wounds each on all of their weapon profiles so yeah so i think so that's why i think best of cutting with the bulgors they're able to um threaten anywhere on the battlefield but so that's and doom bull can make them so when they when bulgors charge nine bulls i could potentially roll nine mortal wounds on the impact hits and then they can charge again into something that's juicy and do nine more wounds they're they're pretty much there to just um, warp the entire game around them and make my opponents have to overly worry about them because they do have the capability of just you know destroying an entire like army on a double. And then Zangor Shaman, Bray Shaman, I like both of them to have blizzards because again when we were talking about blizzards, they're they're cheap. They become cheap trading pieces where like if I if they have to die, they die with a purpose, or I can I'm able to zone off opponents off of objectives or units with a potential blizzard. And then Bleeding Gnarl Staff on my Zangor Shaman lets me fly around on my 16-inch or potentially, um, if I roll a 6, 22-inch moving disc boy just to do a bunch of more wounds to enemy units with the Bleeding Gnarl Staff. And then uh, Brave Blast Trumpet lets me summon another chaff unit. And then I have one unit of Ungor's because it allow, because usually I usually have that unit on the board just to be able to get uh, tactics and like hold one, hold two. And then I have three units of Ungor Raiders because between all those three units of Ungor Raiders, 
that they have 21 shots each, so that'll be 63 shots, fours and fours, no rend, one damage. So that allows me to like at least remove a chap unit at the start of the movement phase, or let's be pepper something that if like let's say a hero if they didn't like screen into it. So yeah, fours and fours is the most reliable profile, but it lets me um for every save that they it could spike, and for every save that they don't make, they it's just a lot of one damage like shots. And when they come off the board, they can just with especially in dark walkers. Ungors and Ungor Raiders can just teleport around just to keep scoring objectives or keep shooting vulnerable units. So that's why I like them a lot. And they also operate as screens. And then I have two units of six Zangor Lightning, because the special thing about Zangor Lightning is that they stop command abilities in the combat phase within three inches. So there's no all-out defense. They can't all-attack. So they're a very punchy unit for being 180 points because they have three attacks each. The leader has four attacks each. So you have 19 attacks, fours and threes, rent two, two damage each. However... If they go second in a in the battle round, if Beast of Chaos goes second in the battle round, they go to wounding on twos. So if you all attack threes and twos, rend two. Or if you get to turn four, where you go up another rend, rend three, two damage each. It allows them to be a trading piece at 180 units and allows me to have a, a secondary threat when after the Bulgors charged. And maybe the Bulgors did their job, but they died and that they died, you know, doing their job. So it allows me to have some units spread over the board and then they are. Also, um, they have the Brayherd keyword for my grand strategy of desecrating Brayherd. So, so most units in my list outside the Doom Bull and the Bulgors have that keyword. And Slongors, I like them because they're another scrape, they're they're another like cheap hammer unit I can trade, and they're good at clearing screens if the Ungor Raiders didn't finish the job. So yeah, this list just um, not only does not only can I play this list offensively, I can also pull the trigger when I need to, and it plays for tactics well with how much mobility I have with the list, and it has enough damage, and it has enough like let's say even if I lose a Bulgworth, it has enough staying power to help me uh, play for five turns. Love it. Yeah. Yeah, but like I said, remember everybody, the rupture is not rupture; it's blizzard. <laughs> All right. All right. All right, so we're back from a tiny little uh, little bathroom water break, and uh, we got two remaining lists to kind of go through. The next one is a Quake Frey list, uh, Desecrating Bray Herd again. Bloodthirsty Triumph uh, again is the Triumph. Uh, you have a Doom Bull with the Bestial Cunning Bray Blast Trumpet. You've got yourself a Beast of Chaos Sangle Shaman, again with the Bleeding Null Staff and Hoarfrost now. You got yourself a Great Bray Shaman with the Vicious Strangle Thorns, six Bulgore uh, with the pair of axes, ten Ungore, a Gorgon, the Quake Frey Cygore, two Cockatrice, uh, two units of six uh, Zangor Enlightened, and the Doom Blast, Blast Dirigible Horn. So this is 1980. By the way, this and the last list also had Warlord and gained an extra artifact. So. Both of them were around over 10 drops, so we haven't reduced the drops. How is, does this one differ to the last list we just spoke about? So this list relies... So Dark Walkers likes to play around the board. So that's how the other... That's how my list that I played is built around. And also because of Nine Bulgors, it's, I have that unit because it was really good into like hammers like or tanks like OBR. This list relies on um, being a debuffing castle army that likes to trade because there are so many debuffing tools in this list because for example quake fray or cygor 
Um, it can do D3 mortal wounds if it if there's enemy enemy youth on Jake because it has them. And then Doom Blast Jurchorn, that endless spell. So within so if a spell goes off um, within six inches of it, enemy units are minus one to wound, and it and the aura of it goes up six inches every battle round. So when I was um, when I was helping Brian Cox make um, this list because this is his list and he's done very well with it with several four ones. Um, essentially, what he likes to do is that he likes to hide it behind a terrain piece because you need light of sight to unbind endless spells. So you, if you don't have light of sight to unbind the endless spell, eventually throughout the game it just becomes this massive aura of like minus one to wound, which helps the arm, which helps beast of chaos or this list specifically be more durable than most beast of chaos lists. And then if you combine that with cockatrices, where on a four up you just only hit on sixes. So imagine where like let's say you're you're fighting this army where you're only hitting on sixes. If the four goes off, you're minus one to wound, and then it it becomes really hard to kill these beasts of chaos units that are usually generally have like a four or five up save. And then Gorgon is there because he's consistent at not only being able to be buff himself off extra rend, he's great at fighting horde units like zombies because when he fights certain units, um or when he fights units, he's able to roll a dice and he can eat models to heal them. And then he has a monstrous action where if he kills at least a model, he heals three wounds. So with with the with the cockatrice and minus one wound, he's able to survive with being 16 wounds on a 5-up save that keeps healing. So he's really hard to deal with. And then in addition, Zangor and Lion provided their debuff of no CP within, within um, three inches in the combat phase, and then you have the Bray Shaman that has vicious strangle thorns that felt makes it so uh, you can't pile in. And then Zangor Shaman, in addition, has Bleeding Gnarl Staff for, you know, AoE mortal wounds. And then, so there's so much layers to this list that makes it different from the Dark Walkers list we were looking at, because this army actually wants to play close together. It wants to play, like, um... It wants to be. It actually wants to like play in a castle, which is weird for a piece of chaos list, but it works in the context of how much, how many debuffs and like durability that this list like. It, on paper, it doesn't look that durable, but when you play against it or you play as it, you just have so many tools where like you you can afford to play a piece of chaos army that's actually on the board rather than being off board. So the only unit that you actually need to put off the board is the six bulgors. Which which is nice, and then um, with horror frost, because most of this army, most of the units this army does hit on fours. If you can make a, um, if you can make Zangor lightened or Gorgon hit on twos, they just become world beaters. So yeah, that's why like uh, I wanted to share share this list with everybody because it's a different way of playing piece of chaos. Where like let's say if someone's looking at piece of chaos results, all they see is dark walkers. No, this list has proven itself and it introduces another like layer to the army and it truly demonstrates that each sub faction allows you to build a different kind of beast of chaos list yeah i really like that i like that the petrifying gaze from the cockatrice will make only unmodified sixes to hit score a hit if it deals mortal wounds to them i like the dirigible blast of the the doom blast horn and it's a really interesting pickup that you've talked about with the visible to them right yeah. Probably not a lot of people think about that is when you try to uh, dispel an endless spell, it has to be visible. So hiding something like this that has this aura of effect uh, ability and hiding it from line of sight, great. 
really, yeah. really good call out. Yeah, and I think, um, so while there's only several hammers in the Dark Markles we were looking at, almost everything in this army, outside of the Ungors and the heroes, are a hammer. So he just has so many, like, threats. And even the Cockatrices that being 120 points, their base attacks threes and threes, um, two damage each. So if they charge, they, they double their attacks. So not only are they a good debuffing piece, they can just go in there and just, like, fight, especially if something charges the cockatrice and you roll the four up. Yeah, I dig it. I like it. I like that you've shown uh, even some of the similar units from the last unit, the last list, but in a very different play style to show that there are multiple ways to use it as opposed to just one bulgors. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, you've got yeah. a lot of variety here. Yeah, so like, like yeah, because the other Dark Walkers likes to rely on Bulgors. Uh, this list um, doesn't rely on the Bulgors. The Bulgors are, yeah, they still have to worry about six Bulgors, but six Bulgors are not as expensive as nine Bulgors. So while everything else is on the board, six Bulgors are more like a flanking unit in this list rather than being the primary, like, hammer or, like, destroyer of everything. Before I move into the last list, uh, and that's the Michigan GT list that's literally just uh, finished up, uh, you, I just want to ask you, Horfrost, where's Horfrost going? Is that going onto the Gorgon Saigor or is that going into, uh, cause the Cockatrice has some really nice abilities when it charges, you get to double the attacks on the charge. Where's Horfrost going? So because I've played against the, um, Brian Cox, who's like the one that I helped with this list. Um, yeah. he generally puts it on the Gorgon or Zangor Enlightened. But if a situation comes up, he, he can put it easily on the Cockatrice or, like, the Cygor. Because let's say if you you spike the roll, suddenly they can be Ren 3 or Ren 2. Like, that's, like, a lot of, like, potential, like, damage that would otherwise not have gone through before. So, yeah. So I guess I like that's why we're I like that debate we were having about, like, oh, do you take Blizzard or do you take Horfroth? It really depends on what kind of Beast of Chaos list you're taking. There's no, like, right answer, which is why um, list building in this army is, like, you know, it's, it's good. Like, I, I like the options that we have. And remind me again, this is Brian Cox's list that you helped write. Yes. Yeah, so this is not my list, but this is help one that we've experimented with because uh, we I'm talked only, a lot. I'm only teasing you. You've mentioned it a few times. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just teasing. Yeah. The last list, and maybe you helped write this one as well, was uh, Michael, is it Roosh? Apologies. <laughs> My, Michael Roush. And I didn't help him. I didn't help him with this list. But he has, but we have, like, talked because, um, we're both Team America Minutemen, so we like to like just express our ideas to each other, which is, which is so, great. So Michael's list, uh, just coming off the back of a top 10 finish, if I remember correctly, a 4-1, uh, was from Michigan GT. It is a uh, Dark Walkers list, a Desecrating Greyherd, Indomitable as the Triumph. You've got yourself a uh, Zangor Shaman, which is the general with the Slack Frey Reveler uh, Command Trait, the Knowing Eye Artifact, the Merciless Blizzard uh, spell. You got yourself a, a Bray Shaman with the Bray, Bray Blast Trumpet and Hoarfrost. You've got Grashrak. I'm glad to see Grashrak. It's such a great model. Uh, Grashrak has the Tendrils of Astrophy. You've also got yourself uh, Bellacor, the Dark Master, being an ally from Slaves to Darkness. Three units of 10 Ungor, uh, two units of 10 Zang Chaos Zangor. You got yourself a unit of six Zangor Enlighten on disc, three Dragon Ogres, and you've got the Ravening Direflock. Obviously, Grashrak's the spoilers come free with said Grashrak. So, yeah. and this is Warlord and Vanguard, and I know this is not your list, 
But what are the insights that you would call out when you check out this list and why do you think it went well at Michigan GT? So even though I don't know how the meta of the Michigan area is because I play in, in the West Coast, um, this list is – so every, almost every – so to shout um, – Everything in this list outside of Dragon Ogres and Bellacourt have the Brayherd keyword. So obviously you can play around the um the Brayherd, like your grand strategy very easily because you just have so many like different units to like, you know, just be around the board with. And it, this list is also like similar to um the other Quake Fairy list we're looking at, is that there's just a bunch of like individual trading pieces and like potential hammers. So I guess to shout out some things, uh, Bellacore is a really interesting addition to BOC. Uh, Bellacore has started to show up in a lot of Beast of Chaos lists that have been doing well, especially at Nova and like events around the world, because uh, because BOC units don't like to get hit back. Bellacore offers that like you know it, that protection, especially if um, it also pre also prevents an opponent from making the most out of a double turn. Because if you have Bellacore and you keep rolling the three up to like do Dark Master, sometimes you even want to give the double and he just like stops them. And you know, he's even though he's not like a crazy combat like profile, like you know, everyone taught everyone knows that like he sucks in combat <laughs> in everybody's experiences. He's his like Dark Master can be just like game winning and he he moves 14, he he flies and he's like just generally decent at like taking a flank on his own and he's there to provide like roar if you need it for example and he has a minus one wound spell so like just he's a um he's like i think our best ally choice out of all the other potential ally choices even though we can only ally in slaves of darkness so that's one thing to shout out with the list and to shout out grass rack so grass rack has a spell where within i think 12 or 18 inches of him if it goes off on a seven he can give the entire army plus one to hit against the unit. And not only does that affect Beast of Chaos units, it also affects ally units because the wording is friendly units. So he's really effective for that. And he's actually also the only hero that has a bodyguard. So he can also, if he's doing D, uh, three morals to himself, he can pass it off to the bodyguard unit. But if he doesn't do that, um, having Grashrak's spoilers, like his warband that follows him around, allows him to have like another uh, piece on the board that just runs around and scores, scores points. Um, Zangors are different from Zangor Enlightened in that um, they're on 32s like Gores so even though um, they sadly GB isn't a thing what's make them really effective is that they're one of the few Beasts of Chaos units in the army that has that base hits on threes so they hit on so they have three attacks each hit on threes wound on threes no rend one damage so if you're able to honeycomb it right you could have a lot of like potentially um about 20 or more attacks into like a unit with threes and threes, no rend one damage, but with Hearthstone, rend one, one damage. Or if you get Horfrost off, suddenly you have like 20 attacks potentially, like with all attack twos and threes, rend three, one damage each. It just allows them to clear screens and be a trading piece in the army. And then it's like you don't have to like in the in the two lists that we're looking at now with uh Quake Frey, and then this Dark Walkers list that did well, they're not relying on Ungor Raiders to clear screens, which is what my how it's how I like to play Beast of Chaos. But we're showcasing these lists to demonstrate that you don't you don't need beast you don't need to always take Ungor Raiders or Bulgors in your list, as you can see with the diversity of these Beast of Chaos lists. And then he's taking Zangor Lightning on disc, 
So while they're just as expensive as Bulwars and they don't do mortal wounds like Bulwars, they have the same thing where they stop CP within three inches, except in this list, they also move, instead of moving six inches on foot, they move 16 inches, or with the Slake Frey Reveler command trait, they move 19 inches anywhere on the board. It just allows them to just be this mobile threat that can get to anywhere and dictate combat when they want to. And then I think the reason why he also included, for example, Dragon Ogres in the list. So if you look at that War Scroll, they're actually like, they're also the other unit in the army that base hits on threes. So they, and they have a Nate Red one. So by the time it's turn two, they can get a friend two. So if they're, they're five attacks each with three models, so that's 15 attacks, threes and threes, Ren two, two damage each. And their special thing is that if they charge, they any uh, hit roll of six gets the Nighthaunt rule of it just becomes like an auto wound or whatever whatever the wording is. So they don't have to roll the wound roll if they roll a hit roll of six. And then they, in addition, they also heal on a two up D3 and they do damage within three of an enemy unit on a two up D3. So yeah, there's just a lot of like um, this list. This list likes to likes to play all around the board. And he has three units of Ungors because he likes to take advantage of the fact that, that if he takes multiple combats, they can retreat instead of fight. So he likes to make opponents have to force to think about, okay, if I let this Ungor unit retreat, then they might take this objective from me, or they might deny me a battle tactic, or I have a swing in the hair unit. So it gives their opponents, his opponents, more choices than um, he then they like to like have to be forced to make, if that makes sense. Couple of quick call-outs before you tell me about the Ravening Dire Flock. Uh, the Grashrak spell is 18, which is really neat. You also have one maybe extra ability we didn't talk about, which was the extending of the um, the Rituals of Ruin by six inches, which I think is really, really neat, especially mm-hmm. with the, with the is it the Blood Hunt, the Get Over Here? And... Mm-hmm. And then also the, as you said, the uh, dragon ogres. They when they make the charge move, uh, hits of hits of a six, an unmodified six, will just automatically wound. So they just go straight to a safe roll. So yeah, um, but you don't get the consistency of a bulgore charge, especially when you're combining it with the the doom ball. But um, they are they have a lot more wounds, if I remember correctly. They have. Um, oh, they're five five wounds each. I remember, that, but they are uh, yeah. yeah yeah dragon ogres are five wounds each. Yep. So they'll count as two on an objective as well, which is neat. Yeah, and I guess they're like even they're they're enough of a threat where like you have to worry about them, where like you can't you can't just let them run rampant in your lines. I tell you what, though, I really like the the ravening dire flock. I think it's got some fascinating rules when you look at the fact that it can shut down, rally, and inspiring presence within six inches. Although it is a short, it's a short range. So, but the other one, which is the interrupting of the uh, command, so being able to yeah. uh, stop issuing and receiving. If anyone's played OBR and like how annoying they can be with yeah, some of the, the command point stuff, like being able to intercept or interrupt a uh, a command being issued or received. Um, does this number does it, does it increase or always just six? It's always just um, six. It doesn't. It doesn't expand at all. Yeah, yeah. It's just within six. It's not like Doom Blaster turn. So yeah, this. I was gonna shout out that endless spell. That endless spell is a uh, really like effective, and it's like almost you could almost argue maybe under costed for the utility that it provides. It not only does one thing, it does two things: stopping rally or inspiring presence is big because you want units to like just die and run away and then potentially stopping a command port or stealing a CP um, is just 
it's another like way that it protects BOC units from being hurt. Like it just adds more, another layer of protection, just like how Belcor's Dark Master ability works in this list. And then also, um, the other, his spell choice is also like, you know, it's with Tendrils of Atrophy, because I know we were talking about spells earlier, uh, giving a unit of Zangors or uh, Dragon Ogres or Zang, or so if Tendrils of Atrophy goes off, it gives Zangors damage one to damage two. For Zangor Light, it makes it from make their damage from damage two to damage three, and then Dragon Ogre's damage to damage three. And it also, I, I believe, it doesn't say that spell doesn't say just be the chaos units, so it can actually make Bellacor's sword to, to three damage potentially if that spell goes off. Maybe wrong about that, but um, I'm gonna go check the tapes. One sec, one sec, yeah. Well, actually, we just go straight at you, go to spells, uh, spell more to do uh, pick one ME unit. Uh, you say you say tendrils, right? Yeah, tendrils of atrophy plus one uh, damage by each. Okay, so because you're picking the enemy unit, you're not picking the friendly unit. You're picking the enemy. So yeah. Okay, sweet. So I thought it only I thought it possibly only applied to beast of chaos units that benefit from. But yeah, Bellcore could benefit from it. The range is limiting, but if you if you think your hero is going to get charged, or they charge a the screen, or you just pull the uh, enemy unit into the hero with the uh, blood taunt, then you're able to get a spell off. And then the artifact, knowing I, that one is, um, that one's interesting. I, I've looked at it and I'm not the biggest fan of its use, but he obviously made it work in this list because with how the knowing I works, if you take first, um, I believe you, I know it's either first or second, you get to like move six inches. It depends on who takes a turn. If you take the first turn in the current battle round, after players receive their starting command point, you receive one command point that can only be spent during the turn to allow the bearer to issue a command. If you take second in the current battle round, after players receive their starting command point, the bearer can make a normal move of up to six inches. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it's definitely, it's, it's techy, And it's, like, definitely helps players, um, you know, make decisions. Maybe you could deny, like, tactics. Maybe you can, like... Get units on a, the shaman objectives, and while all three lists did have some common things, like let's say Zangor shaman and Brace shaman, um, the nice thing though is that like all different, all the three lists we looked at demonstrate how you can tailor the army around your playstyle. There's no one way to play the army, and I, I encourage people with who play these chaos to not just like look at like a top list because I think for some people. It, especially with how Beast of Chaos works, it's not a straightforward army. So if you try to pick up a list that does well, maybe maybe you have a different play style than the player that did well with it. You just mainly won't do well with it. So that's why I encourage you to you know experiment and just play around with it. Because for example, I didn't think that Zangors were like that effective until Michael Roush like you know proved me wrong. So I was like, okay, you know maybe there's some ideas to think about. Or like the Quake Frame list, I didn't understand it at first when I was like. Um, helping to like write that help with Brian Cox's list, but then he's made it work, and I'm like, okay, there's like different ways to play the army outside of just like ambushing and charging. So like is and like because um, the beauty of our book is that every war scroll and spell is like um, written effectively. You're you're able to tailor um, any list to your play style and sub action. I will say. Probably the weakest of faction to me right now is all heard because of the loss of GV. But maybe someone will prove me wrong and you know make it make Quake Frey or not Quake Frey, uh, all heard work. Oh, good. Yeah. So, so I've got probably 
two final questions for you and then I will go to work. Uh, first one is we haven't quite talked yet about the meta. So uh, if I was going to go to a tournament with my Beast of Chaos, how do you think about uh, or whether it is at least construction, whether it is um, playing him on the table, how are you playing against the top table, table army? So in any combination, whether it be Seraphon, OVR, Soulblight, Corn, Slanesh, um, any, any thoughts for me as a, a basic chaos player responding to these armies? So against those armies, you really have to play around the fact that like, compared to most of those armies, you actually have a really reliable, you have five reliable battle tactics that you can pull from even more than five battle tactics. And you have a semi-reliable grand strat compared to those armies. That is your biggest advantage against in those matchups. And even though statistically and like on the board, our army is like maybe not as like effective as OBR, for example, there are ways you can play around those top armies by, um, I think it depends. I think if you go to like a big event, you want to be able to make a list that can handle not all of the top meta matchups, but at the most as much as you can. So for example, that's why I like taking nine Bulgors because there's a because OBR units, for example, are hard to kill, or like let's say um even Slanesh with their like debuffs or everything, nine Bulgors just make sure that something's dead most of the time and it warps the game around them. Or like Seraphon where like, I just need to be able to punch through their screens and double charge right into their slams. So that's, but that's how I like to play Beast of Chaos. And that's generally my answers to it. I think you have, to, against those top armies, you have to think about how, you don't have to think about tabling those armies. You have to think about knocking out enough of their hammers where they cannot threaten you for the rest of the game. If you're able to just kill enough of their threats where you can just score for the rest of the game because you have easy tactics and, uh, book and, and a GHP tactics where you just don't have to engage the score, then you can just win the game by off of, um, by just by, by maneuvering. We are the masters of being able to dictate the battlefield and being able to maneuver around your opponents. And I think uh, B GW did a really good job at emphasizing that as a the theme of our army. And um, you should take advantage of that as a general to, and pilot it in a way where like you're able to, um, maximize the most, you know, to get a, to get you know victories and wins, and you know you'll have a good time with it. I will say though that because Beast of Chaos is a complicated army to play, I recommend if someone wants to do well at an event with them, you need practice against the top armies with Beast of Chaos to be able to understand how to beat them. And even then, because those armies are stronger, or maybe they have recursion, or they have just tools to be able to not be impacted by Beast of Chaos like tricks. Um, you just have to be able to, um, you know, just understand the matchups and then just try to make the most out of it. Because even despite this, whatever, you know, this gameplay I'm suggesting to you guys, nothing's a guarantee. Dice can roll a certain way. Maybe people make mistakes. And then, um, but yeah, I think you just always have to be conscious about the weaknesses of Beast of Chaos and the strength of the army. And you and you just try to play the best ability that you can be. So, yeah, that's really kind of my take yeah it's interesting because you know i see a lot of people when they don't do well with a list the, the first thing they want to do is gut the list they want to make multiple wholesale changes they want to pull things in that'll solve their problems but actually it's about understanding and often the micro decisions and that's why exactly in in this channel we always talk about list last 
it, it could have been easier if we just went, hey, Matt, what's your top list and how do I go for one with Beast of Chaos and here's the list and I take it and I'd be free. But actually, it's all the decisions that happen throughout the game and, you know, understanding yeah. which which levers to pull at what time and uh, who gives me more reliability than others and which are the combinations. And it's through that knowledge you get a much better understanding of what you can anticipate over the three hours as opposed to just this is the list and it gets changed or the meta responds. And it's really interesting as well because of the Dawnbringer series that the meta is constantly shifting. Um, How will Caradron Overlords and their gun hauler shenanigans impact the meta? What's going to happen if Gargans start hitting the table again? If they work out that grand strategy and how the terrain moving, removing ability works, right? Like this, and who knows what Dawnbringer's three is going to bring. And like, there's so much on the table. The meta is constantly moving and it's great to hear that you've got the tools to respond and you feel like you're in a good spot to be able to respond regardless of where the meta shifts. Yeah, even though I, so I think if I have some issues with the army, I wish some units like Bestigors, maybe Dragon Ogres and other things were like less expensive because I think, um, I mean, outside of like, let's say Quick Fray and um, how Michael Roush did his list, I feel like a lot of the results that Beast of Chaos players have put out is mainly contingent on Bulgors and Ungor Raiders because they synergize so well together. And that's just because those two units synergize with how um, how well with how like our ambush mechanics and everything. And it'd be nice to see those other options so we don't have to entirely play around those units because they're arguably, they become predictable to people to an extent of like how they work. But um, because like you said, the meta always changes. Beast of Chaos have enough units um, and spells and and grand strategies and uh, what's it called battle tactic to always adapt to the meta. I always feel like because of how this book is written, we will always be in the high forties because we're able to just adapt to um, the general like lay of lay of the meta, as you as you would put it. Yeah, and you're, and you're less reliant on units. You're more reliant on a play style, and we've talked a lot about the ambushing mechanic. And you can dictate the the terms of battle through being able to essentially keep your toys off the table for turn one, turn two. So yeah. that that control um, is huge. It's huge because, um, you know, some armies are really tough to shift across the board. Some armies struggle to score battle tactics or deny battle tactics. You've got plenty of tools. You've got tools in the toolbox. It's about using the right tool at the right time. And Beast of Chaos, as I mentioned, is a steep learning curve for that reason. Yeah. Steep learning curve, and there's no like one list to follow. It's not like, oh, it's like you're taking 200 zombies. Okay, the list writes itself. Yeah. Everyone, because every so the, the nice thing about this army is that they're for let's say if we look at if you think about like the, the Johnny, Timmy, and Spike uh, archetypes of like how people like play styles, um, there's ways there's there's a sub faction or there's a list for all those types of players. Let's say if you're a Tibby player, if you want to run a bunch of monsters, there's Gorgon inside your Quake Free. That's great. If you like Dark Walker teleport shenanigans, um, then that's then you know that's great for um, Spikes who like that reliability of just being able to like dictate board. Or if you're like a Johnny and you like the game spawn tricks of like just debuffing and just trading, then you know that's for you. So like there there is a um, there is an army and there's a list for every kind of player in Beast of Chaos. 
So I, it's a really fun army. I think I like how accessible they made the army compared to the last book where you just have to take hordes and it just became this like weird, like almost felt like you were playing like a death castle army where you, just, you were just like being just way too effective what you're doing. And now this army feels thematic to what's in the lore of the army. And I, one of the biggest reasons why I started Beast of Chaos was because of the lore, the lore of the army and like it's just ambush ways. And that's why I got a, a tattoo of it. Yeah, I love, my love of I, the army. I love your dedication, and as Joel uh, Joel McGraw used to say, uh, friend of the channel, we'd say like when I run my basic chaos, it used to be just waves of trash. Like it was just like don't yeah. care, just waves of cr crap, and just trying to trade up the whole time. But the last question I have for you, and then we can kind of like wrap it up, and you can you know give some shout outs, is if Dawnbringers was to hit um, basic chaos, what new unit? and all rules would you like to see added to Beast of Chaos? And by the way, folks, while I give Matt a quick second to think about his response, if you have any thoughts or comments or what you'd like to see in Beast of Chaos, leave it in the comment section. Don't tell me like Best of All go down in points. Like be, be creative, be fun. What's the what's the thing that is missing right now? I would like to see a, um, I would like to see a Dragon Ogres um, army of Renown because in any of the Beast of Chaos um, battle tomes, they always have a uh, keyword called Thunderscorn, but we've never had a Thunderscorn sub-faction that like, encourages you to focus around Dragon Ogres. And I think the reason why they didn't do that is because with the with how they um, create our Beast of Chaos sub-factions, they make it so that you don't have to take, like, it's not centered around like a unit or a particular archetype. You can take all, you can take most games of Beast, or most units of Beast of Chaos in any of the sub-factions. But I think because Army of Renowns tend to be more niche and they want to focus around like, a particular archetype, I feel like the Dragon Ogre archetype has never really been explored in Beasts of Chaos because I know from what I've heard in fantasy, they were a Warriors of Chaos unit that got moved to being in the Beasts of Chaos unit. And I feel like in from what I've read in the Battle Tome, they have a they actually are an important part of like our lore, but we've never really had a and, the, and they have their own spell lore too and everything. But it'd be nice if we could just make it an entire army of just Shagos and Dragon Ogres. And I'd be really excited to see if they would do something with that. So, GW, if you're watching this video and you're making uh, any last-minute drafts to Dawnbringers 3 or 4, Dragon Ogre Army right now. Let's see it happen. It's interesting you say that, actually, because if you look at the lore of the Dragon Ogres in Age of Sigma, their lore is they're from Azir which mm -hmm. which uh, obviously is the home of, of Sigmar and the Stormcast Eternal. So it's fast. Actually, that's a really fascinating. I probably wouldn't have picked that. I was going to go the obvious, which is just more monsters. Like, let's just remove the uh, the Jabba Slife completely. Like, we've given up on the Jabba Slife at this point. Give me some more monsters because for me, I'm really drawn to the monsters of Chaos side, and I think there's definitely some more monsters you know, update the cockatrice sculpt. Give me a bunch more monsters. I'm, I, I, I love monsters. Uh, who knew the Gargan player liked more monsters? But yeah. <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think you made a good comment around the the dragon ogres. I think there's a lot of design space, and you see that what they've done with uh, Iron Jaws with the piggies, and they've built out the piggy range. Curious yeah. to know what they would do with with dragon ogres outside of just the Shagoth and the dragon ogre models. Yeah, I mean, I also if they release if they gave us a bunch of new monsters for Monster Chaos, I'm all for it. I think the biggest thing that appeals to me about a Beast of Chaos army renowned is if they whatever they make, I hope that they're able to 
make an army renowned of Beast of Chaos that isn't reliant on ambush. I want to be able to, like, it'd be cool if they had, like, foot to be entirely be on the board. Maybe we lose ambush in that army renowned, but then they give us other mechanics to make up for it, to show a different side of Beast of Chaos. So hopefully they do something cool like that. You know, it would be it would be a different way to play the army. I just hope it isn't, like, fundamentally, like, broken or, like, you know, good or bad. You know, like, I hope that, like, it's, you know, it doesn't need to be nerfed or, like, it's unplayable. I hope that, like, it creates a different um, play style in the army. So that, that's the hope, anyway. Folks, if you have a thought or a comment, I'd love to hear what you would love to see in BC. I'm sure there'd be a lot of opinions, right? Bring in more Centicore-type models. Bring in more X. Bring in more yeah. Y. Let me know in the comments. Curious to hear from you. But Matt, any shout-outs? And if people want to chat to you about Beast of Chaos more, where can they find you? Yeah, so to find me to talk Beast of Chaos, you can join the, you know, Age of Sigmar coach Discord in the Beast of Chaos chat. <laughs> That's honestly where I mo mainly talk about with my BOC list. I want to. I also want to shout-out, you know, not only you for letting me, like, talk about this army because, like, I love it so much. I also want to shout out the Beast of Chaos community there because we bounce off ideas around each other a lot. We introduce things to each other. And there's just so much, like, good discussion. Even though, like, maybe the discussion's, like, a tiny bit slow right now because we're, fig we're all testing and figuring things out. Um, it's a good community to talk to. I I met some of I've had a I've had the pleasure of meeting some of these Beast of Chaos players in real life and even playing like two of them at Nova. So like it, it was great to have like that mirror match. And um, you know, outside of them, I will also like to shout out, you know, the SoCal region, SoCal United, the team that I'm leading. Like everyone on there is great. I like love that we travel together. I love that we like play, you know, we're all friends with each other. We can mess around and have a good time. And I also like to shout out our, my or not the region team, but my more more, more uh, lo my home county, my local team, Age of Ligmar. It's kind of a click of some of us. <laughs> yeah, um, feel free to ask me what Ligmar means, but <laughs> I, I think that's a whole, that's a, probably a whole video in itself. I got to ask you though, when do I get my SoCal shirt? Considering I am a top performing uh, member as per the ITC. Uh, <laughs> Last year, you were our second place highest scoring, and you only played one one event with us with your sons of the Hamlet. So yeah, no, we are. You know, trust me, something juicy is coming with, for you, and we would love to hang out with you again. Obviously, maybe you also need to see more people this time outside, just hang out with us the whole weekend. But you know. Yeah, who knows? can't who knows? wait. Well, well, I'll be at LVO24, so uh, I'll, I'll be repping there. But, Matt, this has been awesome, as always. Um, high tide lifts all boats, in my opinion, so I hope that Matt has given you plenty of knowledge to think about how you play, whether you are heavy ambush, whether you're playing in monsters, whether you're playing into the debuffs, whether you, however you like to play Beast of Chaos, I think we've given you something for you especially in the current season of the GBH 23 and how we're thinking about primal magic dice. We're thinking about whole frost blizzard, the battle plans, yada, yada, yada. Uh, if you have any thoughts, please let me know in the comment section. Always appreciate your hot takes, your things that you build upon what Matt said, or maybe you disagree. Maybe you think the Javis life is the greatest model in the range that we just don't appreciate. Let me know why the Javis life is the best until next time, Matt. Thank you so much. Everyone who listened to the video, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found some value. And until next time, roll more sixes or just don't roll ones when you're casting a blizzard. I think that's the key. Like, just yeah. don't roll ones. Don't, don't, don't get greedy. Or be, be like me. 95% of gamblers quit before they win.
<laughs> I was gonna say, or or if you roll, if you do it against me, roll more ones. Just roll ones. Roll yeah, ones. Yeah. I, I I appreciate. It. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Have a good one, guys. Peace. Thanks for hanging around until the end. I hope you enjoyed that video and you walked away with a few new ideas. Now, if you did, I would love it if you pressed like on the video as well as left me a comment with your thoughts. The conversation will continue over on Discord and the link is down below in the episode description. I also want to give a massive shout out to the AOS Coach patrons and YouTube members who are supporting the channel and the growth that you're seeing here. So cheers, you are all bloody legends. And until next time, don't roll a double one on a spell cast.